Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo, review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo heads back to Italy. But wait, we have to redub an entire movie? And we have to make sure a self-destructive young actor doesn't befall our own fate? And we have to confront our ex-lovers while balancing new ones? And we have to make sure we don't lose our mental sanity? And we have only two weeks. That's right, boys and girls. And the only audacity that would be daring to tackle such a subject matter would be the team behind the bad and the beautiful. And they would be putting us through the melodramatic ringer once again as we prepare to take off for spending some time in Vincent Minnelli's 1962 film, Two Weeks in Another Town. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. Against the frenzied background of the Via Veneto, Rome Sunset Strip, all the fire and fury, the eye-popping frankness of Irwin Shaw's bestseller lashes the screen. Now, producer John Houseman and director Vincent Minnelli reveal the fascinating story of Rome's international film set, like the incredible rise and fall of famous screen lover Jack Andrus, vividly portrayed by Kirk Douglas. For Jack's two weeks in another town, he was torn between a lost love and a new love. I like girls with black eyes, soft mouth. Jack was also torn between a lost career and a new career. I don't want your charity. If I'm through as an actor, I'm through. And to hell with you and the whole murderous business. And then what? You stupid, stubborn, washed-up ham! There are the movie directors like Maurice Kruger, a sensational role for Edward G. Robinson. Kruger was master of everything he surveyed. Everything, that is, except Mrs. Kruger, played by Claire Trevor. Maurice Kruger, the great lover. You don't care what they are, old or young, thin or fat, as long as you get your grubby hands on them. Here, too, are women of the world like Carlotta, Sid Charisse, told you how you look to me, darling. How do I look to you? And here, of course, are the women of Rome. Dahlia Lavi, a girl meant for love. And Rosanna Schiappino as the temperamental foreign star who got her first lesson in American movie techniques. And there is Davy, a striking dramatic departure for popular George Hamilton. I pulled all your idiot tricks and plenty more. Only you still have a chance. Give her back to me. What does she mean to you? Two weeks of company in another town? 
two weeks in another town is hard-hitting drama that ever so frankly goes into the emotional lives of talented people who burn up their talents as they fight for success. Of romantic people who are ready to destroy each other in their search for love. Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. In an attempt to recapture the melodramatic, metatextual commentary of the bad and the beautiful, Manelli, Douglas, Hausman, Raskin, and Schnee all teamed up once again to adapt a novel that sees a washed-up actor on a path to redemption in the burgeoning environment of the Cinecitta Studios in Italy and the filmmaking world within. But unlike the success and triumphs of their previous movie land tale, Two Weeks in Another Town would be relegated to a strange dustbin that may not deserve that placement. What is it about this film that has failed to capture the attention then, and how may we see it through the lens of cinema appreciation today? Well, in order to answer that, we need to bring back the Ballyhoo's resident king of melodrama and the king of getting people to watch Blue Valentine. He is also a writer and filmmaker who may one day attain the prowess and status of a Kruger. But for now, he is here with us at the Ballyhoo. Please welcome back to the show, Ryan Francis Johnson. Hello. Hello. I'm back. (laughs) You're back. It's good, to, it's good to be here. It's good to thank you for having me back. Of course, you were. You were. You, your your talk on the bad and the beautiful was a delight, sir. I fucking loved it. I <laughs> I know it was great. It was. It, it was, was so much fun. It was extensive to getting to the point of just yep. breaking down a, a film that I wasn't aware of, and this is a the film we're talking about today. I had seen, but it's been a while. You had seen this one before. Yeah, I'd seen it before. I believe it was on TCM, and nice. um. It was before Kirk Douglas died. Um, mm. And to my mind, like I didn't I didn't put together Bad and the Beautiful because Kirk Douglas and Vincent Minnelli, for that matter, are not passions of mine. So right. I don't I'm not going to I don't tend to go to them that much. I tend to, you know, follow my little comfortable wheelhouse of like obscure comedy that nobody's fucking heard of. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, if it doesn't have Jack Benny in it, I'm not fucking interested. So like, You're like I don't I don't give a shit. Yeah. Star Wars. Lord, well, no, I like Lord of the Rings because it's got Ian McKellen. Um, I don't know. Fucking. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Let's let's just say Star Wars. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I want everybody to yell at me today. Um, but yeah, no. Hell um, yeah. You. But yeah, you when you brought bad and the beautiful when I did the research, the obvious thing came up is that two weeks in another town was the. Uh, the 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 spiritual sequel to this right. to the to the bad and the beautiful, um, mm-hmm. and rewatching the movie in prep for this, I'm st- I'm shocked that I wasn't tuning into everything the first time, because it's pretty fucking obvious. Um, and the, but the big thing about the comparisons between this film, like, because like two weeks in another town is not the same type of melodrama that bad and the beautiful is. But there are right. so many hints of what Bad and the Beautiful was doing that mm-hmm. it's it's the, the the two are pretty much inseparable in certain respects. But yet they are decidedly different movies. Um, yeah. So was this a first time watch for you? 
Yeah, I hadn't seen it before. Um, yeah, I hadn't. I, I don't even. I'd heard of it because I just from knowing Vincent Minnelli and his work and you know his filmography, but I didn't actually know much about it, and I didn't know that it was like a kind of a spiritual sequel vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and and the writer is the same. Like all those guys, you know, I, I didn't know that. So when I when you brought it up, like, oh, we should you should watch this. We should do this one next. I was like, okay. And then I looked up, I was like, oh shit, that's the, it's like the same, it's like a, the same kind of vibe yeah. or the same, you know, same wheelhouse ish, which yeah. I thought was really, really exciting. Yeah. And, um, I, I was going to ask you because, you know, well, I mean, there's, it's been a while since you've been on the Ballyhoo. So first of all, we should, I should, I should, I should do some banter. Cause that's what all the talk show hosts do. Right. I want to be, yes. just like, I want to be just like Jimmy Fallon. Right. Yes, you have to laugh a lot. Oh, oh, I do that. So I guess, oh shit, I am going down that rabbit hole. Oh no, no, <laughs> um, no. But yes, how have you been? Um, a lot has changed. It's not uh, the same uh, elements Good. of the quarantine that we've been in or the uh, pandemic that we've been in. So I hope you're keeping yeah. well. <laughs> I am. I'm. Uh, yeah, things are. I'm out in LA still, and um, things are starting to open up out here, and you know everybody's most you know everybody's pretty much getting vaccinated you know have you gone back to the movie theaters i haven't yet i really want to i really want to go see um a quiet place part two i haven't seen or i've i have been looking at that one and like oh i want to go back and do a theater with that theater run with that guy you're in for you're in for a treat krasinski did you see it yeah he matched his game we 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 reviewed it um the week it came out and uh it's um I, I really like the Quiet Place movies because they are the uh, like the next bastion of silent cinema because like they're they they are playing with that motif and That's it is it is great to watch people for the most part respect the space yeah but the first Quiet Place I saw in an Alamo draft house which was the best environment possible because if you talk you're fucking out they're like get out yeah they're they're like get out the and monsters they... <laughs> come into the thing and eat and take people out yeah oh. That's better than what I was going to say. They say, get out. And I go, you mean the movie? And they go, no, I mean out of the theater. <laughs> <laughs> like, I love get out. They're like, shut up. <laughs> well, then watch it and stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I went to the AMC for part two. And um, it was kind of like a scrunch situation. I'm like, I'm like oh, crap, I got to fit this into the schedule. And so I go mm-hmm. in to sit down. I got my popcorn and everything and whatnot. And just I'm sitting in the front row to give myself like I like sitting as close as possible halfway through the movie people are running in and out yeah talking i'm hearing kick seats getting getting put back up and popcorn being shuffled around i'm just like you guys like like, guys come on do you not know the premise of the movie you came to see (laughs) it's called a quiet place place. (laughs) what does that what does that tell you Um, that refers to the experience of watching the film too come on (laughs) I I there did when you, I don't know if you'll see this when you go to see it, but there is an introduction at AMC theaters at the very least of John Krasinski going like, "Hi, I'm John Krasinski of A Quiet Place too," and I'm so happy that you can come see my movie in the theater as it was intended, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I want him to add an addendum where he's just like, "And if you're not fucking quiet, I'm gonna do that gym look to you the entire movie, so you won't even watch the movie. You're just gonna watch my face for two hours." <laughs> he's like. <sighs> So he doesn't wait. So they do like a little intro with him. Yeah. Pre-recorded, but he doesn't say like, Hey, by the way, everyone like really be quiet. Cause this is kind of the point. He doesn't say that. No, I wish he had. Yes. I think what a, what a I, missed opportunity. I think the theater exhibitors are going like, we're trying to get them back in at any cost. So don't tell them to shut up. 
like just like really trying like i mean they are they are struggling but we're getting everything like everything's slowly reopening we're getting the westminster alamo back and we're getting the aspen grove alamo back so cool we're gonna be we're gonna be stocked with movie going (laughs) that's great there's one there's an alamo draft house here in downtown la um which is not too far from where i live and um, I've been there a few times and it's great. And uh, it's a newer one that they put in like a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I, yeah, it's open now. So I want to go check it out there. Yeah. And you guys, um, I talked with Strelick about this a month and a half back, but you guys also have the new Bev and the Arrow and the Egyptians. Yes. So got, yeah, all that. You got some good rep houses out there. We're still waiting yeah. for a lot of our rep screenings to return that aren't just Indiana Jones um, or <laughs> it's not that's not it's not like that's not a like a demo, like I'm not like. Right, but it's, you want something a little more, you know. I want variety, I guess. Like, yeah, it, it's clearly catalog titles. It's whatever they're like able to let out. And Paramount is Paramount's not in the best state to the point where they are willing to just unload all the Indiana Jones movies. And Marvel and Disney are kind of like playing the cooperation game, so they're putting out all their Marvel movies. Keep mm-hmm. yourself interested, so that when Black Widow comes out, you fucking go. Um, right. But you know, like I'm, I'm, I, you know, one thing that they did do, and I didn't, I didn't do it. And, and you'll you'll giggle when you find out they were showing Citizen Kane for the 80th anniversary, like at Ooh. very reasonable times during the day. But Ooh. it was all the way in Arvada. And I'm like, I'm not going to Arvada for Citizen not, Kane. I've got it in the house. <laughs> I'm not going to drive out to Arvada. And then and then the, the time passed and I looked at my phone and I was like, what have I done? Like I've betrayed every value I've held. <laughs> have you seen that movie in a theater setting? Never. Never once. No. no, it's always been on television. The first time I ever yeah. saw it was on a portable DVD player, as Orson Welles yeah. intended. That's what he wanted. <laughs> you, you don't understand. This movie was never meant for the entire theater screen. It was meant solely for little Samsung DVD players that just. It was meant. It was meant for your phone. It's meant for it's meant for your children to watch in the back seat of the car. <laughs> But he probably if he saw that now he'd probably be like oh my what the fuck he'd be like Jesus Christ this I, is cr- knowing him though he might be like what is this amazing device and how can I wait distribute cheap films on it <laughs> he's like wait wait I'm gonna only make movies with this thing you mean Netflix will give me how much money to do whatever I want <laughs> he's like, let me in let me in he would do great well I mean given the fact that they already put out one of his lost films on their service they would treat him very well. <laughs> They would. They'd be like, dude, do whatever you want, man. Like, oh my God, you're still alive? <laughs> do whatever you want. Get, get, He's like, get, perfect. Good. My first uh, my first ambition is we're going to recreate Magnificent Ambersons, and it's going to happen my way or the fucking mm-hmm. highway. So mm-hmm. if anybody here is a grandson or a great-grandson of an RKO studio executive, you can get the fuck out. But wait, first <laughs> I'm going to kick your ass before you get the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to beat the shit out of you before... I have you exit. Yeah, exactly. And uh, speaking of Wells, his uh, his traitorous nemesis, John Hausman, is involved in today's movie. Because <laughs> ah, yes. this, this is the same team from The Bad and the Beautiful. So we have John Hausman producing, and we have Minnelli directing, and we have Schnee returning to direct the... Schnee! Yes, uh, Mr. Schnee, get over here. Yes, Captain. Schnee! <laughs> <laughs> I want you to make me a metatextual sequel to The Bad and the Beautiful, but that seems wrong, sir. <laughs> Damn it, Schnee. <laughs> I didn't ask for you to talk back to me. I said for you to write. <laughs> Here, this is the novel. Get started. Erwin Shaw worked his ass off. So can you. <laughs> did I forgot, um, was, was Erwin Shaw, was that, did he write The Bad and the Beautiful novel too? Or is that a different? You know what? 
Let's find that out because that let's, that's a good question because that would make sense with a lot of decisions that are made. That, that, that would be a, that would make sense for a lot of decisions. No, George Bradshaw was the writer of Tribute to a Bad Man for Bad and the Beautiful. But uh, okay. so this is a different source material, but you have the same same screenwriter and as we discussed on the Bad and the Beautiful episode, Tribute to a Bad Man was heavily adapted and rearranged in order right. to create this you know, allusion to the Selznick, Luton, DeMille-esque, right. like the, the the giants of the studio era, specifically from an independent scheme. And mm-hmm. this one, this one is kind of interesting because we're dealing with Italian cinema of a certain time. Right. Um, if we're going to have a history talk about this movie, the biggest talking point would actually be to talk about the setting of this movie because it's taking place at Cinecita Studios, Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it, that is Italian for cinema city studios. So cinema city. <laughs> yeah. Uh, favorite city. That would be a great theme park, by the way. Um, <laughs> that would be good. Yeah. You'd have to get all the studios involved though. So that it's not just like universal Warner's Disney. It's like, no, everybody's got to, everybody's got to play ball here. Everyone has to play. It's, Everyone has to be a part of it. It's all for the art of this. And also I need a topaz the ride. <laughs> <laughs> I, I need a ride dedicated to the most boring, but it's still watchable Hitchcock movie ever made. <laughs> I need a topaz ride. <laughs> I want 39 actual steps that oh, I can walk. Oh my God. <laughs> each, each step is a, is a part of the, of, of the, of the, of the code that the guy gives at the end after he shot. <laughs> it's very, very complicated. I, I told them that this wouldn't be a good ride. I told them it's that a- I'm, <laughs> it's a really boring ride. <laughs> it's it, really painful. Yeah, the uh, the lifeboat one would be interesting, but nobody wants me to put them in a boat in water in a dark room like that. Just that Ooh, everybody that told cool. me lawsuit city. <laughs> that would be fun. That would I would lifeboat. Now that I'm thinking about it, though, spellbound would be a fun ride or like a walking walking tour because you would just go through mm. the uh, Salvador Dali set pieces that he uh, right. created for that film. Um, mm-hmm. And since there are sick. There were 28 minutes of that, by the way, composed for uh, for wow. for Spellbound, and all of it, most of it was cut because Selznick was like, nobody's gonna fucking like understand what the fuck this is. <laughs> what? Cut it out with your weird shit, dude. Yeah, no, he's it's it doesn't matter. But anyway, the but back to the the Shinichita Studios. This is a studio that is still on. Uh, that's it's it's the largest film studio in Europe. This place is fucking huge, and it's the hub of Italian cinema. But its mm-hmm. beginnings dealt with uh, uh, some fascist uh, foundations, if you will. Uh, wow. Yeah, with this, mo- this studio was founded in 1937 by Benito Mussolini, um, oh. known dictator, war criminal, and dude who made trains run on time. So, wow. um, yeah, the, you know, like I, one of those things doesn't excuse the other two, you understand, John. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, and the head of cinema under um, uh, uh, the head of cinema in the country was Luigi Freddi. Uh, and the slogan that they came up with was Il cinema el la arma pierre forte. Uh, cinema is the most powerful weapon. And they were utilizing this studio not just for propaganda, but also to uplift the Italian film industry, which had basically declined by this point. Mm. Um Italian cinema is something I'd like to discuss further in terms of like its history as far back as then. Most of our knowledge of it would be through Fellini and Mussolini, uh, (laughs) Fellini and Rossellini. Um, Yeah. The, uh, the, the, uh, the Italian like neo-realistic wave of filmmakers. Um, But the, the studios 
they among their earlier efforts, they were doing things such as this. And I thought this was interesting in the research. 7,000 people were involved in the ma- in, in the filming of a battle scene for a movie called Scipio Africanus. Uh, hmm. It's a battle scene and live elements were, uh, elephants were brought into this studio as part of the reenactment for a battle of Zama. Now, oh, I've never damn. seen this movie, but they are clearly yeah. like trying to r- gather in all these resources just to b- build up their studio. Um, right. But this is 1937. Cut to three to four years later, um, a certain World War II happens. Um, yeah, yeah. And these studios are bombed uh, by the Western yeah. Allies. Uh, between 45 and 47, Chinichita um, was used as a displaced persons camp for a period, period of two years. Um, and um, at 3,000 refugees had lived there at any given time uh, within two camps, an Italian camp housing Italians and uh, the people that were displaced from colonies like Libya and Dal- Dal- Dalmatia. Um, and wow. then an international camp, including refugees from Yugoslavia, Poland, Egypt, Iran, and China. Um, but they rebuilt, and uh, Chinachita was being described as Hollywood on the Tiber, and <laughs> it had uh, big productions. Now, there is this Italian wave of studio films that come out in the 50s. They, they service as travelogues and exotic getaways and whatnot so like Mm. it's it's similar to the movie to catch a thief where a lot of the allure of that movie besides two of the most handsome and beautiful people on the planet um playing burglars (laughs) uh and uh, (laughs) i love that movie that's like that's a good movie to just Mm -hmm. turn on and tune your brain off but um but that movie kind of captures the allure of paris um and specifically Soldiers who were overseas during the war still have memories of those places. So now they're going back years later after the rebuilding is done. And there is some form of like memory being recaptured there of of some of the positive elements upon liberation. And these films that end up coming out of uh, America for uh, the Chinachita Studios were productions like Roman Holiday, The Barefoot Contessa, Ben-Hur, and of course, John Huston's Beat the Devil. <laughs> Ah, the yes. the craziest batshit John Huston movie ever made, and that's saying <laughs> something for John Huston. Have you ever seen it? Yes, I have not seen that. I, I'm I like his work though, but I haven't seen that film. It's the the script is by Truman Capote. I, really? I, I, imagine, imagine a campy comedy that isn't aware that it's a campy comedy, except for the one person who wrote mm-hmm. the initial book. Um, or like, so like the book is written by James Helvick, but Truman Capote is brought on with Houston to write the screenplay. And it's like, it's like out of anybody, I feel like the only person who understood it was a joke was Truman Capote. <laughs> right. And then Houston finally figured it out in the edit. And then that's what the movie comes up with. But <laughs> it's got Bogart, Peter Laurie, Jennifer Jones, and one of the few roles that I like her in. Um, mm. So you've got like a good stacked cast of people. Um, right. And, but these are all prominent films coming out of Italy, but you also have, as we said before, the Italian new wave filmmakers coming in with things. Fellini's obviously La Dolce Vida, um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, those films coming out of there. Now, this film is kind of responding to something that was booming five years, five to six years earlier. (laughs) Right. It's almost like a delayed response um, because one of the elements of this film that's primarily um, 
discussed in terms of the plot is Italian dubbing in cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what is your knowledge of Italian cinema at a certain point um, uh, with uh, in regards to these earlier films? Because, I mean, apart from Sergio Leone and maybe the new wave filmmakers, it's not like you'd be watching like obscure, like off to the side ones. But were you no, aware that it, they would dub the films? I I think I would be if I was like watching the movie and would see it. You know what I mean? But I, I wasn't necessarily aware of like, oh, this is like the thing that they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, This is a practice that was a thing, you know, all the time. And this was sort of a, a normal thing. I think it was more just like, I would notice it a lot when I'd watch like Italian movies. I'd be like, oh, these, a lot of this is dubbed. It must just be like a thing that they do. But like, I didn't, I guess I didn't know that it was like this practice that was sort of like you know part of the uh, the industry there well a lot of it had to do with you they were gathering actors from different countries right and so in order to get it out to multiple markets they'd redub the movies in whatever language was necessary for that market the person mm-hmm. the person who edward g robinson is up against in this movie is an exemplar of that but right audiences I'll kind of spoil how this film connects to a later film down the line right now. Once upon a time in Hollywood, the Italian dubbing is the crux of why Rick Dalton doesn't want to go to America, go to Italy to make movies. Well, that's right. He doesn't want to go because Italian cinema is seen as trash exploitation films, but the, <laughs> but the Italian dubbing is like an additional craw on his side. As Kurt Russell explains to us in that movie. Right. <laughs> um, Cause I do love that. Uh, <laughs> Kurt Russell has to explain that to people. So, you ever seen an Italian Western? They're awful. <laughs> Come on. How many have you seen? <laughs> how many have you seen? One. I've seen enough. enough. <laughs> so good. We don't have to talk about the movie. We can just recite Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> we'll just quote Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Quote. It's fine. Why not? <laughs> um, but yeah, so dubbing is a, uh, a, a major component of what gets our our main hero in Kirk Douglas going um but this the, right. there is a there is a systematic element to dubbing that goes back to the 1930s in Rome mm-hmm. um right. and uh and some of it had to do with actually the way they were banning films at this time um because if oh, you offended Italy in any way or shape or form you were not getting your movie into the country um, yeah, I've learned more about this sense. from the Marx Marx Brothers console podcast has a, a wonderful resource for talking about a night at the opera. And that movie's supposed to take place in Italy. But the version we have to this day that we've been watching is apparently like ribboned up to ensure that no mention of Italy is being uttered. <laughs> but wow. and yet Ch- Ch- and yet Chico Marx is a character in this movie. <laughs> 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 so already you've already kind of screwed the pooch. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. um and uh but every genre and every every genre and every movie is at this time is done with this practice in mind some of them are doing it for efficiency for that for that market thing others are doing it for artistic intent the most noticeable mm-hmm. that you see from this era is going to be a sergio leone movie so it's going to be the good bad and the ugly fistful of dollars few dollars sure. more and the first time i saw yeah. those films it was really weird watching Clint Eastwood's voice be slightly off, but then see all the act- other actors be yeah, definitely off. <laughs> um, but that's there, true. Yeah. But there is a charm to it. Um, yeah. If I have one criticism about this movie, going back to it that we're going to talk about today 
is that there are clear moments of ADR where it's like even the Italians would do this better than what you're doing right now. <laughs> there are small moments. Like you guys are doing this not as good as they're doing it. Manelli, <laughs> they would do it. Manelli, did you not? You, did you not think that? If you were going to homage a certain element of filmmaking, you might want to, you know, I don't know, try to at least match it. <laughs> I mean, I your know. own homeland. I, you know what, Manelli? I, I, I'm Vincent Manelli here. I don't know. Like, shoot, I'm just kind of here to shoot an orgy scene by the end of this movie. So, <laughs> um, but he's just been spoiled. He was spoiled by the Hollywood system. Yeah, yeah. He was, too, he was like, whatever. Too much. Too, too many musicals that's what that does to you you, you get to rely on mm. syncing and you just think that an adr can solve all your problems you see <laughs> he's like they'll fix it it'll, it'll be fine it'll be perfect hey he was like, vincent well. minnelli d- did on his tombstone it did say fix it in post <laughs> so wait is that true no <laughs> but <laughs> now, <laughs> i was like wait a minute <laughs> But na- but just as but just as John Strelick helped inspire a T-shirt on uh, his last episode, now this has helped inspire a T-shirt for Vincent Minnelli's tombstone <laughs> that says "Fix it in post." <laughs> yeah, it's just the ultimate troll. Yeah, exactly. And, and coming from a person who doesn't like trolls, somehow I have managed to troll every single Hollywood figure we've talked about on the show <laughs> in, in in loving in loving ways. Um, but yes. hey, before we get into this though, we should check in on our friend Kirk Douglas. It's been a while since we've yeah. since we've seen him. Let's see what old Kirk is up to. Um, well, let's see. How's he doing? Uh, not, well, you know, so he made the Bad and the Beautiful in 1952, as we know, um, one of his uh, three Oscar-nominated roles. Um, and in mm-hmm. 1954, he goes on to play in Ulysses, uh, and uh, based on the uh, based on the Homer epic poem, uh, and. He then goes into 1954 with 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which is an amazing classic that feels feels wonderful to still watch. Like The, the visual uh, effects of that are still wonderful. He's fun to watch in it, and it has James Mason mm-hmm. in it. So it can't, be, it can't be entirely bad if you have James Mason in, running around. I'm no. especially droll, and if you watch North by Northwest, I'm incredibly bored. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also I will point out that the same year that he puts out 20,000 20, Leagues Under the Sea our old friend Kirk Douglas makes a guest appearance on the Jack Benny program where he plays himself as a, uh, a, a guitar enthusiast who can oh a banjo enthusiast I should say who can only play Bye Bye Blues <laughs> uh, everybody else is in the, in, everybody else in the band is trying to play a specific song but only Kirk Kirk Douglas only knows Bye Bye Blues and yes I will play a clip of that little section because I think the folks should hear it in the edit Hey Kirk I love it Kirk come here I've got the part for you right here here's your music so what we're gonna Music? Play you know, I don't read music all I can play is Bye Bye Blues <laughs> <laughs> Well look we're not gonna play Bye Bye Blues we're gonna play Basin Street I don't know Basin Street. I tell you, the only thing I know is Bye Bye Blues. Well, for he- we're going to play Basin Street, then fake it. All right! <laughs> <laughs> One jam Two, 
Um, but yes, this this is uh, this is what Kirk Douglas is up to. He is also obviously working heavily in Hollywood. He goes through into the films like The Indian Fighter, Paths of Glory, uh, with one Mr. Stanley Kubrick, mm-hmm. um, also known as the great, great the, movie, also known as the person that Shelley Duvall doesn't want to think about anymore. <laughs> uh, no, and, and then The Vikings, and then in 1960, he calls up Dalton Trumbo and says, "Hey, I'm going to get you off the fucking blacklist. Let's make Spartacus." And then, uh, of course, uh, Spartacus is made. Yeah. It's a huge, huge hit. Um, and and in the same year of the film that we're talking yep. about today, he's also in the film Lonely Are the Brave. Now, Ooh. he's on a roll. Douglas is on a roll. So something like Two Weeks in Another Town comes up. This is just a, this is like a vacation movie for him and to a certain extent is what it feels like. Right. Because he's not. You know, he's he's only having to tap back into the melodramatic aspects. It's like I'd argue that the performances in Bad and the Beautiful and the performances in Spartacus are sort of distinctly different. So he's he's, mm-hmm. he's he's almost like he's be able to keep back and be like, Yes, I know. High emotions, low emotions. Gotcha. <laughs> I know how to do it. Yeah, exactly. I'm Kirk fucking Douglas, motherfucker. Let's let's shoot this shit. Um and uh literally two weeks two weeks in another town for yeah, him it's yeah. a two-week vacation he hey, just gets to go and you act for a little bit you guys titled this movie appropriately <laughs> this is what it's gonna be i'm, prou- I'm in i'm proud of you vincent i'm pr- I'm very i'm very fucking give me a hug brother <laughs> give me a fucking hug i'm finally proud of you yeah it's like what that, excuse me now hold on that's not fair <laughs> because this is t- <laughs> Because six years before, two weeks in another town, he did work with his friend Vincent Minnelli again in a movie called Lust for Life, where he played the role of Vincent Van Gogh. So you Whoa. see, Willem Dafoe is not the only one who can play Vincent Van Gogh. And I got to be know. honest, Kirk Douglas looks more age appropriate for Van Gogh than Willem Dafoe. <laughs> that's fair. I That's a good take. It's not a knock on Dafoe, but... Come on, you're Willem Dafoe. I know how old you are. Wasn't it 10 years prior that you were telling somebody back to formula and out am I? Because <laughs> um, <laughs> he's just he's just the Green Goblin to me at mo- on most days. <laughs> but other days, he's just a acting god. Um, and he was nominated for an Oscar for this role. And he won the Golden Globe. Um uh, and although Manelli said Douglas should have won an Oscar, he said he achieved a moving and memorable portrait of the artist, a man of massive creative power triggered by severe emotional stress, the fear and horror of madness. And mm. this is what Douglas had to say about playing Vince Van Gogh. Not only did I look like Van Gogh, I was the same age he was when he committed suicide. So yeah, <laughs> see Defoe, you need to, you need to get out. And then Defoe just goes out. Am I, um, so so Kirk Douglas obviously he's coming back on board right on you know I get two weeks in this town more like for more probably more time than that to make this movie um just, yeah, I think I was reading it was like 80 81 shooting days or yeah something. 81 shooting days that's crazy and he was paid five hundred thousand dollars for this film and got 10 percent of the profits if there were going to be any um that's not to tease the uh the 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 end result of this film but it was a four million dollar production so it's significantly higher than um bad and the beautiful um and the thing about two weeks in another town in a lot of respects is that this is a film that is coming at the cusp of 
the end of the studio era as it existed. Cause like, it's mm. almost like I should have defined the guidelines of this show better. Cause golden age Hollywood really does end in the six in 1960, so to speak. But the studio mm. system itself that still maintains those values does exist into 1968, 1969. And so right. this is like, this is in similar territory. However, Manelli is fully aware that you can push boundaries because something like psycho exists. <laughs> and so it's, right. and, and suddenly like all bets are off the door because when we get to certain elements of this film, like every, a lot of boundaries are being fucking pushed to the point of just like, wow, you can do that. And nobody was stopping you in the Sherlock office. All right. I guess the MPAA was in full effect here at this point. Um, mm -hmm. and now along for the ride though, we had a lot of different actors surrounding the bad and the beautiful ranging from Lana Turner to Dick Powell. Um, right. We get a pretty, uh, a pretty overhauled cast here. Um, mm -hmm. and I think we should start with the big gun here. Um, because we have to talk about a certain Eddie in the room, <laughs> Eddie, a certain Edward in a, the room, a certain Emmanuel Goldenberg, or as he's known as Eddie G <laughs> <laughs> Eddie. as he's, uh, as he's known on this show, he is Eddie G now. Um, Eddie G. So <laughs> shout out. This is a, this is, this is, this is sad. So, um, <laughs> not to, not to, you know, put it in a, uh, a light, but, Edward G. Robinson was gray listed uh, during the McCarthy era um, <laughs> and in the 1950s started working in such films as Actors in Sin, Vice Squad and uh, The Violent Man and Hell on Frisco Bay. Um, but he gets a kind of uh, uh, boost when DeMille puts him as uh, puts him in the film The Ten Commandments as Dathan. Uh Yes. And he says the infamous line, where's your Messiah now? And then he runs out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> Is that line in the Bible? I mean, if it's not, Edward G. Robinson made the Bible 10 times better. He's a genius. <laughs> it's been a while since I've read the Bible. I'm not going to remember <laughs> that. <laughs> Me too. But he, so he does kind of get pushed up a little bit. He's in the 1960 film, 1956 film Nightmare. Um, mm -hmm. He gets second build with Frank Sinatra in the film A Hole in the Head. Um, he then goes on to Europe for the movie Seven Thieves. Um, and then the same year as our film today, he's also in the movie My Geisha, uh, which uh, is a movie directed by Jack Cardiff, uh, who was talked about on the Archers episode. And it features Shirley MacLaine. Uh, and the poster already tells me we'd be in for offensive territory. So... <laughs> Oh sure. Uh, let's let's just say Shirley MacLaine is in better movies. Um, and the '60s would be an interesting period for Robinson because he would he would be getting work, but he was also on the decline health wise. Um, and uh, the this is kind of skipping ahead a little bit, but like he was originally up for the role of Doctor Zayas for Planet of the Apes, um, and even screen te tested with Heston, but uh, he started oh, wow. developing heart problems, so he couldn't do it anymore. Um, it's not apparent wow. that his health problems are present on this film because he yells all the all the yelling. <laughs> oh yeah, he's stressed as hell in this. He is he is a walking he is me. Shit, he's a walking anxiety <laughs> attack. <laughs> but then he does have heart problems in the in the movie. Yeah, it does. I wonder like 
if that hit home for him or, yeah, you know, I, that was yeah sh- yeah sure Vincent I'll do this scene where I have a heart attack it's not like I'm gonna have one I'm healthy as an ox yeah <laughs> I'm fine Vincent's like who can I who can I get who has hmm. heart who, probably can play heart who clearly has well. heart problems but is also in denial <laughs> I know Eddie G. Eddie G. Yeah, Eddie G. He calls him up on the phone and like, yeah, see, it's me. I'm hanging out. What do you want? What do you fucking want? <laughs> what do you want? You self stressed out. <laughs> oh yeah. This is, this is what I want. <laughs> what do you fucking want? <laughs> this is what I want, Eddie. Just keep it going. Keep it going. Have they have they worked together before? Not uh, that I saw. No. Yeah. But the, but but I find it interesting because like so, he left Warner Brothers after a certain point in the in 1942 and started doing movies like tales of manhattan and flesh and fantasy um and he goes back to warner's for john houston's film key largo in in the role of johnny rocco where Mm. he's uh the it's the it's the last bastion of him as a gangster in the traditional warner's mode right edward g robinson had defined the gangster mold in many ways james Mm -hmm. cagney defines it too but edward g robinson has just as much credit as james cagney does and robinson had always tried to shake it but he always seemed to find himself stuck in it right we've got a film right here where this is decidedly not a gangster character like not even close and what's more, he is allowed to act. Even in Double Indemnity, it's almost like he's... It's similar to when the gangster films turned into films where the gangsters became, like, agents of the law or something like that. Or, like, you, right. you twist it around to get around the code. Double Indemnity feels like that, where he's just like, I'm a, I'm a gangster insurance investigator. <laughs> um, like, I've got the same attitude. As we talked about, he's a walking wreck in this movie. Um, and he wouldn't be alone in the world of the uh, uh in the world of key largo because playing playing maurice kruger edward g robinson has a wife in this movie of, in the name of clara kruger kruger played by claire trevor um mm-hmm. now have you seen key largo before i haven't okay is that bad no it's a good movie Oh, oh no! Oh no! I mean, no. is it bad that I haven't seen it? Oh no! You'll you'll get to it eventually, Ryan. You just I'll you just work it. hard, study in school, and keep watching Treasure of the Sierra Madre. <laughs> I've seen that a couple times. Okay, well then, just go to Key Largo next. It's a wonderful pot boiler where I put Bogey and Eddie in a in a uh, hotel room together with uh, Lauren Bacall and Claire Trevor, and they everything goes fucking nuts while a hurricane's going around. And and I just said I don't care about the safety of the set here. I just want to get this pot boiler shot on set instantly. <laughs> Ooh, that there, sounds great. There's a this is not a uh, spoilers for people who haven't seen Key Largo, but there is a confrontation in that movie that comes to define the closure for gangsters like Eddie Edward G. Robinson. Mm. Um, but the uh, the role of Gay Dawn um, by Claire Trevor in Key Largo is that of a gangster mall who is an alcoholic. Um, and in one of the most powerful scenes in the movie, she is being told by Johnny Rocco, like, if you, if you tell you what, if you sing like you used to sing, I'll give you a drink. And she, you you watch Claire Trevor unfold this tragic song and dance number where she looks like she's like crying while not crying. Like, you know how you like have a tear flowing mm-hmm. down, but you're not weeping that kind of crying. And wow. It was so good that she got an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. Um, 
she would end for her. She would end up going beyond that into uh, into a slew of films, getting another Oscar nomination for The High and the Mighty. Um, she would be in Lucy Gallant. She'd be in The Mountain. She'd be in Mar- Marjorie Morningstar. Um, and mm. we find her in two weeks or another uh, in another town, which arguably this is the film where she finally yeah. gets to snap back at Edward, Edward G. Robinson. If you watch this and ah. Key Largo back to back, it's almost like the, the 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 dynamic shifts drastically in the certain opposite. areas. Yeah, <laughs> like she has much more she has more emotional control here than she does in Key Largo. Um, mm. Now, I think everybody wants to know when are you getting to Sid Charisse? All right, I'll fucking get to Sh- Sid. Charisse. I wanted to know. <laughs> we'll get to Sid Charisse, who plays Carlotta, we'll the. Uh, she plays Carlotta, uh, Kirk Douglas's uh, ex-love. Ex-wife. Yeah, exactly. Now, Sid Charisse, I'm not super familiar with her except for the fact that if you've watched Singing in the Rain, mm-hmm. she's in the movie. Yeah. And Brigadoon. And she mainly works as a dancer. And... Mm. The the reason why I say like you would know her from Singing in the Rain is because Singing in the Rain has the Broadway melody sequence where she is the gangster mall there that mm-hmm. uh, Gene Kelly dances with. Um, right. But she starts off life in Amarillo, Texas. She took dancing lessons to build up her strength after a bout of polio and studied ballet in Los Angeles at the age of 12 with Baum and Najinska. Uh, and at 14, she auditions for the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo as Filia Sidorova. Um, and then she starts appearing in films like Escort Girl and short films for Warners like The Gay Parisian. She gets some early MGM roles, including Mission to Moscow as just a ballet dancer. She's a ballerina in the Siegfried, Siegfried Follies, uh, which was released in 46, dancing mm-hmm. with the one and only Fred Astaire. Um, and then she one starts, yeah, yeah, the one and only Fred Astaire. Nobody dances like a stare. Even Gene Kelly yeah. doesn't dance like a stare because they're two different dancers, guys. They can both be kings. They can be heroes just for one day. That doesn't <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't work with my analogy. Um, but uh, she became a leading lady eventually after getting an opportunity in a B movie called Tension, where she was third build. But because it was a disappointment, she then gets starting to build fifth and going down the the marker a little bit. But she goes back to MGM as a leading lady in the wild north with Stuart Granger, and it becomes a smash hit. And she is brought in for Singing in the Rain because Debbie Reynolds was not a trained dancer. And for that final sequence, you need an experienced dancer. And it makes sense because that section of Singing in the Rain is meant to be a dream anyway. So it doesn't need to Mm -hmm. fall into the same. When you've watched La La Land, you've seen... The, the that same effect taking place uh, you know damien chazelle is pulling out of gene kelly movies and vincent minnelli movies for the finale of la la land um right and so she starts getting bigger roles after that with the movie sombrero the bandwagon um she co-stars with dan daly and meet me in las vegas um she seems to be involved with a lot of films that either hit or miss um and by the time she gets to two weeks in another town, she is playing a, she is playing a very strange character in this movie because she's not. Yeah. 
I don't it's know how, dancing. Yeah, but I don't know how you read this character from a modern context because she's clearly set up to be this villainous, vile woman. <laughs> right. It is almost just like it's 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 this it seems like this weird excuse to make the man sympathetic. I don't know, but like the way it's it seems super contrived. But we're dealing with melodrama, so I guess it's it behooves me to not take that too seriously here. (laughs) Um because archetype, you know. Yeah. I mean, like, and at the end of the day, she is really good at what she's being asked to do. She is asked to be Mm. venomous and she delivers that perfectly. Um And then we also have uh, Dahlia Lavi playing Veronica, uh, a uh, oh, yeah. Palestinian actress um, uh, born in Palestine when it was uh, before it became Israel, like the section of Palestine that then became Israel. Um, and oh, wow. she is of German Jewish and Russian Jewish descent. Um, she actually ma- met Kirk Douglas at the age of 10 when he was in Israel to film The Juggler. So... Oh. Wow. Years later, she's born in 1942. This film comes out in 1962. She's 20 years old. So he met her in, in 19- this movie. Yeah, no, they met her. He met her 10 years before that. Oh, yeah. Because he was in Israel to make the movie The Juggler. So interesting. Kind of weird. <laughs> How did he meet? Her? Why did he meet? Her? He's she, like, hey, yeah. She, how's it going? She she told him she met. She just met him while he was in Israel. And she told him that she would like to be a dancer, Douglas helped persuade her parents to send her to Stockholm, Sweden to study ballet. Oh. So, and she, and she reunites with her him after this, but she starts appearing in Swedish films, um, like the, the novel, uh, uh, a movie called Hemsoborna, uh, which is a novel, ad- an adaptation of the novel The People of Hemso. Um, and then her career starts taking off in the 60s where she's in a, involved in a lot of European and American productions. She's fluent in several languages. So she's been in German films, French films, Italian films, Spanish films, and English films. She could do it all. Wow. Girl's a legend. She yes. ends up becoming uh, the affection for Peter O'Toole's interest in the movie Lord Jim in 1965. Mm. Um, that uh, that would have been her breakout role, but the 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 response to it prompted Lavi to accept a new career path playing scantily clad femme fatales. So it kind of did a weird reversal for her. Um, and, but in this movie, she plays this very sweet, sympathetic role. And she is brutalized at many points by uh, the one and only George Hamilton. Playing one a, only. playing a role that is outside his fucking wheelhouse, and even he admits it. <laughs> <laughs> this movie is uh, this movie was this the role he's being asked to play is he's doing his best, and he actually does succeed in many places. But it's just so weird to see him doing this because he's making fun of method actors and right. this weird uh, withdrawn actor that comes out of the mold of a Marlon Brando or a James Dean or more appropriately for what we're going to see eventually a John Cassavetes vibe was coming out of this like super. Yeah. 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 And his attitude and behavior. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, and I don't hate him in the movie, but like there are moments with the way this script is written where I'm like, I don't know how to read this because this is technically a metatextual parody, but also it's like, it's super weird the way we get sympathy for his character, uh, by the end of by the end of the film, 
because or at least what right. we're asked to what we're asked to swallow in the movie is i think a little bit too much to stretch out um right be, i mean like at this point we should probably get into the discussion of the movie but there are a couple quick production notes um as we said before hamilton did not think that he was right for this role he said he said in a quote i played a troubled funky james dean type type actor for which i couldn't have been less appropriate for um and we have a lot of scenes involving using the location of rome itself so there were a lot of scenes in nightclubs in rome uh and this film because it is connected to the bad and the beautiful there are illusions because we have not just imagery that will pop up from the bad and the beautiful but we also have mm-hmm. footage from the bad and the beautiful <laughs> that will pop up in this literally movie. the movie in the movie yeah exactly J- trust me guys this is going to be the fun part because we're in for a wild, wild ride here but we also have the same song don't blame me being performed in this movie we didn't talk much about the music by david raskin in the uh original bad and the beautiful episode but he wrote the theme for the bad and the beautiful which technically appears in certain swathes and sections in this movie but also the song don't blame me uh which is uh performed by peggy king in the bad and the beautiful uh and in this film it's performed by leslie uggams or or she's known to my heart blind owl in deadpool one and two deadpool two featuring a cameo appearance by jack benny which means jack benny's been in a superhero movie boom and uh now this is where we get to the plot of this movie, which is pretty much the one thing I like about it is that we're not trying to do citizen Kane with um, like, they're not trying to do the same like plot structure where they're going back and forth through time through a couple different perspectives. I think you can only get away with right. it once. I don't think you can get away with it a second time. Um, no. So instead we're, we're treated to a mental hospital and the gates open. <laughs> Uh, right and um you know it, we've got we've got our hero uh jack andrus and he is and hit andrus no that part's interesting it's like he's the opening's cool he like just walks it's like he just oh he just literally just walks out of like the trees mm-hmm. you know what i mean he's like in a suit and he's just walking around like the grounds of this mental institution that looks really nice actually or there this sort of not institution but like sort of i guess like recovery like place it's, like it's, i guess it's like, a it's a sanitarium they they would generalize yeah. this as a sanitarium um and I, I, I the reason he is there is because he is an alcoholic and mm-hmm. his ex-wife carlotta um uh divorced him and he nearly kills himself in a car wreck so he's right. washed up in the broadest sense of the term. He's had a he's had a wipeout uh, uh, with his acting career, to say the least, let alone his personal yep. life. So he's yep. been spending three years in here, and the doctors seem to think he's improving. So much so that they go behind his back and wire his old boss, Maurice. <laughs> yep, this, his old boss, old director. I don't know what kind of uh, boundaries are being crossed by the doctor, but I guess it's... It, 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 does it really matter if I think too much about it? Because... <laughs> 
it was the 60s it's the, they're just like hey you know how can i get one less patient one more patient out of here i know uh this guy knows maurice kruger the now washed up film director so maybe he's got a job for him get him a job yeah because he gets film a ministry is exactly where you should is where you should go back into after you've had a nervous break <laughs> yeah you know where you should you know what you should do when you've been driven to the point of insanity Get on a set with a bunch of other insane people and see what happens when you try In to Italy. All, yeah, and try to make something cohesive at the same time. If you come <laughs> out with something that's legible, we'll give you the Oscar on on principle alone. <laughs> you did it. Yeah. Oh, by the way, the opening credits, just as the bad and the beautiful, we would like to acknowledge the Academy Award Academy that's of right. Arts, Mo- Motion Picture Arts and Sciences for allowing permission of the use of this statue. They're doing the, the Oscar shout out, can't Oscar you, statue shout out. Can't you try for another award like a Golden Globe? <laughs> Just like I knowing what the Golden Globes nope. is going through right now, I don't really give a shit if they're mentioned ever again. But like, it, it was just weird seeing the same, basically the same title card pop up again. I'm just like, we really need to fit an Oscar into here, don't we? Minnelli, you really, really want to mirror this movie, don't you? <laughs> He's like, come on, people holding Oscars? Like, it's a, it's, a, it's my thing. It's my theme. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's weird because the person who ends up holding it is Edward G. Robinson, and he wouldn't re- he wouldn't receive anything in the form of an Oscar in the competitive sense um, in his career. Um, but right. now he would he would uh, get an honorary Oscar in 1973. Um, that would acknowledge his uh, greatness as a player, patron of the arts, and a dedicated citizen in some, a renaissance man. Um, he had been notified Ooh. of that honor, but he would die two months before the awards took place, so it was accepted by his widow. So he never even got oh. to hold his own Oscar, which is really sad. But it's okay. There's film evidence of him but holding he got, But he Oscar. got to hold one here. Yeah, I got to hold this yes. one here. It's, uh, let's see, it's, uh, it's uh, meant for... Some guy named some. Oh my God! It's it's supposed to be for the guy I used to clip in the movies. Bogart. Where where did you get Bogart's Oscar? That's 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 rude of you. Did you take this out of Lauren's house? <laughs> they just stole it. Yeah. <laughs> they just he they, won't notice. They thanked the Academy, but they didn't say that the Academy gave them the statue. <laughs> <laughs> like oh no they didn't give it to us we just we stole one yeah but we but we hey caught us red-handed we'll acknowledge that the academy approved this <laughs> i love the idea of them stealing bogart's oscar after he's dead <laughs> he's like hey oh, yeah, he's dead, oh, yeah, he's dead. yeah, yeah De- vincent minnelli's okay. just like look i don't really give a shit about he has what no boundary- class I, vincent I don't care what boundary i'm crossing here <laughs> you think the art yeah yeah exactly you do anything for art um now the question is will jack andrus do anything for his art will he go to rome for a cheap job of a small part in maurice's next movie that pays only five thousand dollars well the doctor seems to think he's doing better and that he might be good enough to go outside to the point where he should yeah he says he should and he he asks him like what happens if i come back and it's a it's a failure doc are we talking about a long-term cure or a short-term cure and he said i never promised a cure and then that's when we get the (laughs) cross dissolve and go like all right cool well i guess so ominous bender city (laughs) i'll get the fuck out of here then and we and we have him at the airport and i love i love old-timey airport uh, yeah. aesthetic i love it don't you just want to sit in that at pan am airport yeah. and read a magazine <laughs> it's so cool yeah smoke cigarettes and sit there smoke cigarettes sit there yep. drink your coffee and just 
em- embrace the brown and puke yellow visage that surrounds yes. you with the aesthetics. Oh yes. my god. If you've uh, if you've ever watched a television sketch like comedy hour special from the 60s or 70s and you see it in color, like I I'll point to Jack in this one. He does a Pan Am sketch and it's super it's a super big set and I'm just like I want to just sit in that set. You just sit there for like an hour. I want to sleep there. Like that sounds really cool. Hang out here. Yeah, I know. Oh, it's, yeah. I know it's not a real airport, but fuck it. <laughs> but I like it. Yeah, I and, like the vibes. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And he gets uh, he he gets noticed by the wife of his former agent, and then his former agent is there and <laughs> promptly declares that interaction. Him, yeah, I've always hated you. Even when you were a, a big star, and I still hate you, but now I can tell you to your face. And Kirk Douglas smacks the shit out of him. Smacks the shit out of him and breaks his pipe. <laughs> Did you rude. notice that? That yeah, and that's rude as shit. You don't do that. <laughs> I wonder. How, I, I was curious about that. If that was like a intentional, or if that was accidental, because it looks like it was an accident. Like there, it looks like he just smacked the dude in the face and broke this guy's like pipe and it like shatters and it's it's very visceral looking there was (laughs) nothing there was nothing that i found in the way of like (laughs) takes because this is the the sad part of this is that there's not a lot of extensive coverage of this film similar to bad and the beautiful but bad and the beautiful has way more coverage on its history this one's because it's a failure nobody bothered to document nobody cares yeah nobody nobody cares nobody cares nobody cares about me nobody cares about two weeks in another town i stole bogart's oscar and everything what did i do wrong (laughs) um and but it doesn't dissuade him he goes off anyway after again smacking the shit this is like this is where the movie starts like going to heights of emotion that even bad and the beautiful doesn't do like we don't get this kind of scene in bad and the beautiful where he like randomly smacks the shit out of somebody in an airport like he's very angry yeah he's not like he's very uh i feel like in bad and the beautiful he was um more i don't know he was i mean he's a different character but he's much more composed and sort of you know wheeling and dealing and sort of being he, he's being sneaky and figuring things out this he's just like he's just angry now i will tell you i like this movie a lot because of his performance i like yeah. what he does with this performance that being said we have to observe moments like these because he is going for it and i always appreciate mm-hmm. when an actor goes for it yep he gets to rome italy and he gets onto the set of maurice's film where they are filming a a scene on a boat uh, where the uh, actors are speaking <laughs> different languages. <laughs> yep. And uh, it it prompts them to fall into the water. And <laughs> the lead actor... I love that scene. The scene that they're shooting, it's like there are the, the man and the woman in the boat, and they're arguing, and then she hits him, and then he hits her, and then they just start making out. Yeah. It's, it's like, what, it, what is this movie? It's like the <laughs> ultimate, like, it's like the ultimate, like, holy shit, we're trying to do screwball Hepburn kind of thing, but we are getting it, like, we are we are not capturing the essence whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's very, very much Vincent Minnelli looking at what everybody thinks those movies are and distilling it to that scene. But right. you're also doing romantic comedies of the 50s at, like, the Roman holidays and stuff like that like an Audrey Hepburn kind of fair so like mm-hmm. he's drawing off of that too clearly because this is so broad everything in this movie is super broad everything mm-hmm. from the way the characters act on down to how they're describing the films that are being made in certain respects um, right and Maurice calls cut and Maurice is Maurice Kruger is wound tight he's very wound tight 
Yes. And um, as we discussed earlier, like a walking anxiety attack. High stress. Yeah. He's, this is not, this is not Rico from Little Caesar. This is something different. Mm-hmm. I, I honestly want to say, Ryan, that this is, I would put this in the top 10 Edward G. Robinson performances from an mm. objective point of view. That's fair. It's, it's a film that I kind of wish he had gotten recognized for in within the Oscar because he's never really done this. Yeah. He's, he's wrestling with the emotions of an artist and yeah. of all the performances, his is technically the most grounded. <laughs> yes. Because he's Agreed. allowed to be subtle. Everybody mm-hmm. else has to be bigger and he gets quiet moments in this movie. Yeah. Um, especially when you have Claire Trevor, his wife like kind of coming down on him later. Right. And so Jack arrives and the production is, he thinks the, he thinks this production is going off swell and he's getting the high of being on a movie set again. So he's like, Oh, Mm -hmm. he's all in. He's like, he's ready to, he's, he's feeling good about reconnecting with his old friend that he thought was maybe trying to take advantage of him. And that clearly can't be the case. Not even close to the case, except it's going to be the case. No, of course not. Because this production's in trouble. Yes, it is. He needs two more weeks to make this movie. As all are. And well, yeah. <laughs> Every film, it, uh, my uh, my AD Marshall uh, has been saying to me recently, it's a miracle that any movie gets made. Um, and so my job oh, yeah. is to make sure that that we can facilitate that miracle to happen. And like, miracles. My job is to make miracles happen. Yeah, I, it's it's. I mean, it's true. Like we are trying to build. Like even in the direst circumstances, we are like with a short film that we like that we do. It's like mm-hmm. you know, like we're here to make a miracle happen. So let's make a, let's be a fucking miracle maker. And oh yeah, and I believe that because anytime we wrap the production, I'm just like, even if this movie sucks, we're, we've we've got a film in the can. That's like how a, did we do that? Yeah, how we how did we capture images with the camera? And then somebody who's a camera expert explains it to me, and I'm like, that's not what I meant. <laughs> don't <laughs> like, explain well, like this. Don't explain science to me. <laughs> I I just know it. I just believe in it. I didn't say I had I had ex- I needed to have it explained to me because I it's going one in in one ear out the other. <laughs> Terminology, <laughs> math. Um, but yes, this, she needs two more weeks and he needs additional time for dubbing. Um, but, uh, Tuccino, the film producer played by Mino Doro is not having it, not having it. He has a contract where if you can't finish this in two weeks, I'm going to finish it and I'm going to do it my way. And my goal is to make a profit of $472,000. It sounded like here. Yeah. He had an exact figure that he was like, as long as we make hit this profit, I'm happy. It's just so funny that he, he just knows like the amount of money that this is probably going to make, you know, and that's all he's trying to get in and out with to the point where he's just like, look, I already know that the movie will make money regardless of what I do, because I'm going to stick it so in a bunch of territories. Yeah. So right. your, your art means nothing to me. And, and he tells him that he's like, I don't, he's like, do you care about making a good movie? Or do you care about integrity? And he's like, no, <laughs> no, he's like, no, not really funny guy. You know, I'm, 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 I'm not here to be your art, art friend. <laughs> Like, I don't, I don't fucking care to the point where, you know, I was trying to figure out like if we had a modern equivalent of that because, but it's hard to suss out because most film producers that work today or executives of that nature have some vested interest in their film being, being entertaining while also profitable. Um, Mm -hmm. And like, and having something to it, like, I mean, I don't want to throw, Michael Bay under the bus every time I 
like get a chance to but like it seems like the transformers <laughs> movies the the executives behind that like De, De Bonaventura and um and those guys it seems like they're they are obviously aware of what they're making those movies for so they don't care how they come out so long, so long as they make the money back and since they've got an ip in their hands they don't need to worry um whereas something like the mcu was... they do care about their content like better or worse right well it seems like these almost like some of these streaming sites like netflix or amazon so it's almost like they know there's like it's it almost feels like it's precursoring like that algorithm sort of thinking which is like this is gonna make this we already know Mm -hmm. how much this is gonna make just based on these algorithms and based on who you know the genre and who you know and who watches it and all this stuff and i think it's it's that kind of thinking yeah which which is not on which is not unreasonable especially given what we live in but Mm -hmm. there is a limit to how well that works before you're just like well no it it comes with like the art or the art or the product if we whatever you want to call it being good and Mm -hmm. kruger really clearly wants to make a good product because he's been on the outs for a while he wants to get another production off the ground he he's been he hadn't worked for i think it was three years and he barely gets this by the skin of his teeth right and this is the last thing he needs to hear from a financier because he's also dealing with the fact that he's a two-timing asshole who's now being rightfully chewed out by his wife played by claire Claire trevor um the way minnelli moves the camera with claire trevor in this movie is remarkable it always feels like minnelli was secretly entranced by trevor here Mm. because when that when she's moving around minnelli makes it very clear who who the dominating force is in the imagery and he he clearly likes Eddie too, but he really likes Claire Trevor because the only time he allows her out of frame when something important is about to happen is when it needs to happen later on when she goes into the bedroom, into the bath, into the bathroom, I should say. Right. Um, and uh, and there's a purpose behind that. But she's also pissed amongst other things about the two timing with the lead actress but also the fact that she brought jack back because they've had a bad history with each other and they've had a bad right they've they they have not gotten along and no yeah and she really doesn't even want him around the vicinity but maurice is already cooking up the scheme he's just like well i can have jack run the dubbing of the film to finish the movie. Um, it's like, I know this yeah. actor, this, this, my act, my former actor can do it. Yeah. And, uh, so he would assist them. I believe that the, the intent is that he, ins- he assists the dubbing while Kruger finishes the pr- physical production. Right. Um, which then becomes complicated later. But mm-hmm. here though, he brings, he brings, jack into the into the abode to have a drink or uh, whatever i it's his alcoholism is unclear to me because he uh he clearly has wine on that beach later on with veronica (laughs) Uh, right but you know like i don't know what the i don't know what the perception is i guess it's like hard liquor for him i don't know like to me if if you're if you're an alcoholic you just don't touch a drop but (laughs) it's all of it yeah yeah exactly like it can't have a content above a certain level at a certain point that like that, then you're just literally drinking for pleasure. Um, but like his, but he, I mean, right now we have the conception that he has it together because Kruger offers him a drink and he just refuses to really answer. And yeah. he, 
holds on to the Oscar and kind of starts talking about like the dreams of like these film, like these filmmaking light adventures they've had together. And we made some good ones, didn't we? Yeah, we made some good ones. <laughs> and Jack's basically cued into the fact of like, you know, like, wait, so the job's not happening. Okay, fuck it. I'm leaving. Like, why'd you drag me all the way out to fucking Italy? Like when I'm clearly a broken human shell, like, <laughs> Like you, you've kind of twisted around with me and he I get back to the sanitarium. Yeah. I got to get, I've got, look, I had a pinochle game set up with my buddies and you took me away from that for a fake job. Yes. And he convinces him like, no, 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 no. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I, this is what I need you to do to help dub these actors. And he takes them out to a restaurant and they go over the deal. And Jack Jack is aware that he has the advantage of Maurice. So he knows Maurice enough to know, like, I've got the advantage of him. Mm-hmm. So Maurice goes like, I'm going to pay you the 5000 that was expected of your job as an actor, but now you'll be directing the dubbing. And he goes like, yeah. no, 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 no. Because it's your money and I and I, and I want the work. I, 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 you're, since it's your money that you're going to be paying for because the studio is not going to pay for it, I want 10000 And... Maurice yeah. agrees over the fact that there's a they are still tapping into that camaraderie that they uh, feel for each other and they sing all Lane Zine uh, and we fade it <laughs> out and this is where we get the uh, the meta moment at all meta moments um, they're in a screening room to look mm-hmm. at Jack's previous work. I don't know the purpose of this meeting per se, apart from, I guess, introducing Jack as a personality to the cast and crew of this to movie. The, yeah. Because I think that makes sense. But it but it does do something important emotionally because it is Andrus watching a version of himself on screen and what he used to be. And mm-hmm. the movie plays this reflective game with the Douglas perspective that it didn't get to do with bad and the beautiful bad and the beautiful doesn't come from um, Douglas's perspective. It comes from the people around him. So Mm -hmm. this is the first time it's almost like we're getting to watch Douglas's character in the bad and the beautiful get reflective on the moments of the bad and the beautiful. Right. Layer upon layer upon layer. I got to admit, I don't know if it fully works. But I appreciate the intent. Um, Sure. The thing I don't appreciate is Kirk Douglas kicking off his shoes in a screening room. Your feet are going to fucking smell. Stop that. (laughs) Oh, yeah. He was doing that. Didn't he do that? Wasn't that a thing he did in the last one, too, in Bad and the Beautiful? Taking his shoes off? He did. And I don't remember if I commented on it or not. But if I did. Maybe it's like a, is it like a comfortable, comfortability thing? I mean, yes. But like the only time I'm accepting that kind of comfortability, at least now, like within the last couple of months is if I'm watching the aviator and I'm seeing Howard Hughes take off his shoes in his screening room. Cause that's his screen. I'll room. do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yes, no, we do see, we see footage of the bad and the beautiful. And it's specifically the moments with Lana Turner where um, he's getting her off of her, off her rocker to uh, she's getting, he's getting her back into fighting shape to be this actress that he knows he can be, she can be. We show right. the scene of her being dunked into the the pool by Douglas, That's and funny. the 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 this is the moment from Bad and the Beautiful that compels 
George Hamilton's character to sit down after it looks like he's about to leave. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, because Davy Drew is one of those drama queens to say the fucking least. Like he is like that, that uh, I don't want to be rude. That overtly emotional, like oversensitive portrayal is what is being got at. And it's right. done without nuance. So therefore, it's like it's like a, it's a it's a rude portrayal of like actors who do care um yeah. but but it does it does a also caricature yeah but it is but it is Manelli commenting on a form of acting that is not in his wheelhouse because he grows up in the studio system this is yep. not this is not his forte because douglas is yeah. an actor so. it's almost like him being like this weird new school of acting coming in that's like these young kids that are all like moody and methody and they disappear for days and whatever. They don't cooperate. Like it's almost like him being like this, this new generation that he's almost like scared of, or I don't know, or sort of disapproving of maybe. Minnelli spent $4 million to say the phrase, these kids today with their, with their jazz records and their rock and roll and their drugs. (laughs) And their moppy hair, (laughs) their moppy hair and smoking cigarettes and beating their girlfriends. Oh yeah, yeah. He hit. There's a lot of smacking the shit up people in this movie. Yeah, this is kind of the vibe. This is the this is the melodrama of it all. Right. But yeah, Davy hitting Veronica is immediately like an okay. You're on the bad list. Just monstrous and terrible. And fuck, why are you the way you are? And <laughs> um and Veronica is very distraught by that and by the time the screening uh, the screenings is nearly over edward g robinson gets up and goes like well i have to get ready for rewriting the the scenes of the script and davy goes like again oh my god why can't you just keep the scenes the way they are (laughs) (laughs) hamilton's selling it i'm not gonna lie which is is fair i I get it sometimes like i'm sure that's tough for actors yeah they're just like another piece of dialogue change we're changing it Jesus how God. dare you try to make this script better <laughs> how dare you yeah i got used to one version of it that's all i want we fear change i'm garth <laughs> <laughs> um, and by the time the screening's over we see actually the images of lana turner dick powell and um I'm trying to remember the guy who played the director character in the movie. Oh, yeah. I can't remember. But they show the end of it. So it's kind of weird. Last shot. Yeah. Minnelli gets secret cameos out of Dick Powell and Lana Turner. And it's just, <laughs> it's it's crazy. And that that's when Jack Andrus introduces himself to Veronica and they go out for a little bit of a time on the town. Um, yeah. I love it, that, that sequence. So it's like after the screening room and they kind of go on this like, almost like kind of date thing sort of yeah like, it's, it's it's a getting to know you kind of thing. yeah i like, like that section they sort of we sort of follow them in in rome and they kind of go out and, and we get a couple of nice. sections like that so it's not yeah. even just this one but this one also involves carlotta played by shit and, and see she shows up for Leave, the first time. yeah so they're driving down the street and she's in another car she goes like oh say my ex-husband i think i'll emotionally <laughs> manipulate him <laughs> She gets out of the car in a traffic jam and like walks over to him, leaving her billionaire husband question mark in, in the car, like leering. <laughs> and he, she lays into him about like how wonderful her life is, but how much she right. wants him. 
and Douglas is trying to keep it together. This whole movie is Jack Andrus trying to keep his shit together. So he's trying he to doesn't. hold it in, man. He's trying to hold it together. Yeah, for a movie that's melodrama and for a movie where he is required to be over the top in certain areas appropriately, he mm-hmm. is he is restraining a bunch. That's why the performance is kind of brilliant because you know yeah. from the get-go he is supposed to restrain and he's supposed to be yep. subtle but he's not so that's it's almost like it's it's the failure of an actor to be an actor mm. that's how i looked at mm. it because if you're an actor shouldn't you be able to act like everything's okay that's like mm-hmm. that's not the truth that's what the impetus of the theory comes to my mind when i'm watching the movie it does not mean that right. actors need to hide in a shell that's irresponsible for your mental health uh, sure. <laughs> um, yes and that actually brings them to a dinner scene with veronica and kirk douglas which i love that scene but he, he's clearly ignoring her and continues his monologue <laughs> as she's trying that's to true. change the subject <laughs> Yeah, he's a little uh, self self involved at yeah. that point. Well, and and the only reason that I don't like like admonish him over that is because you know he has just seen a person that he's been trying to avoid. It is established that Carlotta is in town, and now one of his new goals is like, all right, I got to avoid Carlotta at all costs. This can't happen again, and. Right. Well, she's sort of just, rep- it's like a physical representation of like his, just his past, you know, and all the kind of dark stuff that happened to him. And it's just, it's like, um, yeah, his, his past, you know, issues and things sort of resurfacing that he's like, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, deal with that. Yeah. Or think about it. Yeah. Besides, he shouldn't need to think about it. He's got Veronica. And if you're wondering what Veronica's last not. name is. Veronica's last name is Veronica. What's the difference? That's the name. That's her full name. That's it. Yeah. It's the, That's what she said. Not going to lie. It's the lamest name for a Bond girl I've ever heard in my life. Veronica. Veronica, what's, the, Veronica, what's your name? <laughs> what's it? I don't know. Oh, Jesus. Saltzman and Broccoli, you're not even trying anymore. <laughs> She's like, that eh, doesn't matter. You used to be cool, guys. Now this is just fucking sad. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. I thought you people were supposed to be fucking creative. Why well, I could write a better script than this. And you know what? I will. You know what? I'm gonna. <laughs> Cut to all those years later, he did none of that. Like, did you write that script, huh? He's like, no. No, no. No, of course not. I wanted to play golf. I was just saying that to get in Broccoli's face because he's a fucking asshole. <laughs> um, and this is when we get the start of the dubbing sequences, too. So... He's he's being chewed out by the head of dubbing. That's who, right. Who basically says, like, you don't deserve to be here. You don't deserve you this don't, job. You don't know what you're doing. You don't deserve this position. Oh, actually, before that, I should say that he and Veronica do end their date. They do end their date. Yes. She, she's like, no, I better go. I'll take a taxi. And he meets her at the door. And she goes, I said I'd take a taxi. And he goes, I know. And then he just kisses her and leaves her be. But then Carlotta calls and it triggers him. And so Mm -hmm. she stays with him. And then we get to the dubbing scene. And this is, this is a nice little behind the scenes element of watching like what it goes on behind the scenes in a film. Like bad and the beautiful does a lot of good stuff with that. But I feel like this one feels more authentic. It just feels more like what it's, actually kind of like <laughs> yeah because they because they're clearly not working in it's almost because it's it's almost like the chinachita uh environment 
resembles much more physically of what we see today from a recording right. studio perspective. Like these, yeah. this felt familiar. The studio Hollywood aesthetic, the Hollywood studio aesthetic doesn't feel as familiar as this particular version does. Um, yeah, this is more, it's not as overly romanticized. It's more just like realistic. It's like, oh, this is just, it's this weird room and there's people sort of sitting around and it's kind of boring, but it's kind of cool. You know, like we're doing this, we're just, it's a little arduous what we're trying to do. And so I, I guess like the juxtaposition that. there is that Manelli is going for like, he's trying to recapture the themes, but he's also kind of stripping down the layers a little bit because the, it's definitely less like grandiose than that movie. This, yeah. this movie is yeah. it definitely feels more. Yeah. I mean, it has, you know, beautiful, you know, lighting and sets and things like that. <laughs> it's still ostentatious in that way, but it's not, it's not as sweeping, I guess, and not as overly romanticized. I feel like as as bad the beautiful was. It's on the road. It's it's like it's you know you are yeah. you are dealt with a travelogue a little bit because they do want to explore Italy, right? And the the most intense scenes that we get in this recording studio involve dealing with Davy Drews, who is just not meshing with uh, Andrus and. Right. The only reason Andrus isn't really smacking the shit out of Davy, which he should, like realistically at this point, is because yes, I, from pretty early on, Jack is starting to see a little bit of himself in Davy, yeah, and his own self destructive path, and so like that's where we get this weird. It's it's a tricky area when you're discussing Davy's redemption by the end of the movie because the only reason we're tolerating elements of it is because the script is con- the script is constructed it as such that Jack Andrus is seeing himself in Davy and it's almost like he's trying to save him in certain respects or like shift mm. his shift his course a little bit. Now I don't know I, if I don't know if that works fully, but mm-hmm. it, I, I didn't I was able to turn my brain off on it because like the only exceptions being when Davy acts the way he does by hitting Veronica or also what we're going to get pretty soon with him with that switchblade <laughs> where I'm just right. like, I'm just like, nah, dude, you, you're kind of irredeemable in a lot of respects, but like, I know what the intent is by Minnelli to like parody these, these moody actors. So I'm, I'm going along with this bit and it sucks because I guess I forgot, I guess I forgot that he pulls out a, a switchblade literally, which yeah. is like very, very James Dean. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, the, 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 by the time we get to a return to Veronica town, like she, uh, I was going to say, I had this pulled up in my notes. Like, so she agrees to meet with him at, um, at her place and we see Mm -hmm. her sporting a black eye. And so, and he says the phrase, like you ought to go, you ought to stop going with guys that, uh, give you black eyes. And, uh, that, Mm -hmm. you know, like that it's, treated as a joke and it's kind of weird it's 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 an of it it's definitely of its time and it's of its it, time. yeah and yeah. it's inexcusable but it's there and right. you kind of just you kind of just go with the flow on it it's 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 very it's it's tricky to say the least and mm-hmm. we get the along those lines also we start seeing more of maurice's um domestic life and 
the the way it starts off is with Claire Trevor going like uh, this is what happens when when that Brad Bird puts stories in the paper and right when yes. I when I was hearing that again for the first time in a while I was just like Brad Bird and then I Brad looked, Bird from Pixar yeah and I t- and I took the titles and I did the subtitles and it's pronounced Brad Bird B Y R D so it's not mm-hmm. the same but <laughs> if you don't have subtitles on guys. Apparently, Brad Bird, before he was a master animator and the director of one of the most successful Mission Impossible movies, he was just a gossip columnist. <laughs> he was like, bitch. And according to that age range, a Time Lord. <laughs> and he's he, a vampire. Oh, he's a, oh, Brad Bird is a vampire. A vampire. Is that he was why? Back then. Was but how did tell me how him being a vampire explains the movie Tomorrowland? <laughs> Because uh, <laughs> George Clooney is also a vampire, and that's why I don't they think there's together. any explanation for that movie. <laughs> it, the explanation is oh my god, we're running out of theme park rides. <laughs> Let's do this. Let's do this one. Remember this one that nobody talks about because nobody goes to it at the park anymore, and we're going to replace, we're going to do something better with Star Wars Land. <laughs> um, but uh, Galaxy's Edge. Yes, but this this scene that we get. Claire is fuck. Claire Trevor's fucking had it. Clara has lost it, and she. She's yeah, and she. Kruger, Maurice Kruger is unashamed of his of his philandering, but he cares mm-hmm. about his wife, and it's a weird like duality. And he explodes for the really for the first time in the movie. Yeah. By going like you know like of course I do. Who would want to be with a, a like dried up old hag like you? And right. it, it savage. It, it's it. That's 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 the touch of Eddie G that we knew from the gangster movies that seeps its way in here. Well, mm. this yep. and the following scene, because she draws the door closed and he suddenly realizes, oh, shit, she's going to do something stupid. So she so he goes inside and he's trying to unlock the bathroom door because she's locked herself in the bathroom. And from inside the bathroom, we see the window smash. <laughs> I know the mirror smashes. He gives it a he gave it a Hulk punch. That's like, I know. <laughs> Again, I wonder like was it meant to I guess it was meant to be that way, but it looks like a real mirror. You know, he looks like he's actually breaking it and then he breaks the door open. Clara, not only have I had to stop your drug overdose, but also seven years bad luck. Nah. <laughs> Fuck. Uh, th- this How am is, I gonna check myself out in the mirror? This is the last thing I need. I need when trying to make this movie. <laughs> um and he clean this up. And here's another example of things getting more advanced in uh, the way we can describe things on screen because he goes flat out. He's just going like, you know, do you do that again? I'm gonna have to call the doctor over here and he's got to pump your stomach. Mm-hmm. So we get it. Like we're already dealing with hard drug abuse and whatnot. Now, in an episode that I've already come out, we have talked about ODing with the apartment, which came in two years before that but but we're but we're now starting to see like established hollywood figures like edward g robinson and claire trevor addressing it like that like that 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 feels that feels bold that feels very bold um that's true especially since like they probably would have gotten away with a lot of it in the pre-code but then the pre-code goes away and so now you're dealing with this you know nonsense group of rules put up by the different sensor boards so this this feels like adult this feels yeah. this feels mature and we juxtapose that also with a scene with him in bed mm-hmm. where he is 
emotionally vulnerable. Like this is the moment where I'm like, you, you yeah, don't need, you don't need to give him the Oscar, but you need to nominate him for this alone. Right. There is, I, I, I'm fairly sure there's other Edward G. Robinson movies out there that capture this same essence that I haven't seen yet. But right. this is a moment where I'm watching an actor who's been through a hell of a journey in a personal life and in a professional life. Yeah. unwinding a lot of emotion whether that be you know lear- learning to be an actor and overcoming a lot of prejudice because of him being jewish and okay. being gray listed he's he's been through a he's been through a very harsh gamut and mm-hmm. you're seeing him unload in this honest way that the dialogue is super corny and sure. super on the nose but it's sold by the actors like sometimes yeah. good sometimes like corny writing and cliched writing is 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 good as long as you have the right actors in the role selling it. Right. And if they if can if they can sell that and then you have this like you get this definition of Claire Trevor's relationship with him where she's aware of the philandering but she's like she's almost like attached to the hip to the point where she can't break away from him because it's he's ultimately like a big baby who needs constant coddling. <laughs> Um, sure. And well, then, you, you get like you get like a good like um, intimate moment with them, and you kind of see you see what their relationship is like in a more yeah, just kind of a intimate setting in a more vulnerable way, which I think is good to see because you're mostly seeing them like argue and at each other's throats most of the time, which is a little um, tedious, you know, <laughs> an obvious yeah, or just like an obvious thing that you might see, and so it's good to see that the other side of it. And I think yeah. I think they do a good job. There's a there's a there's a juxtaposed scene of this nature in the Hitchcock biopic that uh, Sasha Travarsi did, where you have Helen Mirren and Alfred Hitchcock, out Al, Helen mm. Mirren and Anthony Hopkins, um, going in a scene <laughs> together where she goes she does like the opposite where she's like I celebrate w- with you when the reviews are good and I cry with you when the reviews are bad like she. <laughs> she stands mm-hmm. up for herself and like the f- how like if somebody's claiming that they don't give you full support she's just like oh fuck you motherfucker like <laughs> said, fuck you, and, dude. and this is the this is the opposite where she's just like oh no 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 everything's gonna be okay <laughs> it's gonna be fine yeah. <laughs> and um this is we start getting more uh journeys around town with uh jack and veronica and we get this yeah. scene at the beach yeah, I gotta tell you, it's very lovely. It's very lovely scene. Like, very lovely, romantic Italian, yeah, like beach setting, going over the fact of what it's like to be an actor. He said, he said in one line, he's it's wonderful how he, you know, he'd go into work at nine a.m. and he'd be expected to uh, invent the telephone, win the West, and sway the jury. And I'm like, I. We, you and I came up with some concepts for movies in the Bad and the Beautiful episode. This is one where we need a guy who invents a telephone, sways a mm. jury that also wins the West, and, and wins the West at the same time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the jury, it, the, he has to sway the jury so that he his his authority mm. wins the West. And in yep. order to communicate with the jury, he has to invent a telephone. He's like, I can only call them. Yeah. I can't be there in person. <laughs> if, I can, if I can invent this phone, something to call them. Yeah, exactly. So it's Alexander Graham Bell trying to win the West yes. while being a lawyer. <laughs> yes. 
And, Perfect. And, and right away, since it's about Alexander Graham Bell, I'm like, well, Kirk Douglas doesn't get that role. You give that to Don Amici like you're supposed to fucking do. <laughs> but, mm. um, but they also get the... Uh, he goes through the thing of like what it's like to be an actor of like, you know, what is it like to be the, the, the woman, the, the guy that all the high school girls want to like ogle at and how the guy that all the guys at the bar want to punch to see how tough he really is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was like, how many fucking bars were you going into where people were poking you going like, Hey, Andres, you're not so fucking cool. <laughs> hey man, get the fuck out of here. You're, your scar. you're a big actor. There's a solution to this home drinking. <laughs> Why are you out right now? <laughs> quarantine six feet apart dude, dude stay home <laughs> not okay that's why they're beating him. that's why they're beating him up yeah exactly two weeks in another quarantine that's that's two weeks two weeks just two weeks and then we're gonna go back to normal it's fine yeah exactly yeah just kidding oh, oh god i wish it was gone but it's not um and the he he wants to live the future one day at a time ryan while drinking wine and i'm like you're an alcoholic. <laughs> oh boy. And he does. They do bring up the point about like what kind of wine they have. Uh, the Vinoble wine. It'll come back later for like a romantic mm. tender scene. That's right. Um, but this is also where we get the scene where Davies pulls out the knife. And I love the, right. sh- I love the shots in this because it reminds yeah. me of a Tarantino uh, vibe of like where yeah. they have a wide shot and there's clearly like a standoff going on. Mm-hmm. So it's like I don't think I don't I don't know if Tarantino watched this film in prep for any films that he's done. Like my, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood would be my go-to because of the aesthetic. Right. But it's almost just like man, like at ver- at the very least, like this kind of imagery has passed its way along so much that even somebody like Tarantino is going to grasp onto it because. Davies comes in because he's just like, you stole my girl. And I, I know I hit her, but now I like her again. <laughs> yeah, so. exactly. Cause I'm a moody <laughs> actor whose emotions swing as well as his mental health. And, and <laughs> he, uh, but he, he, he kind of like, he's, he's super afraid to do it. He's a coward. He's a fucking yeah. like Davies is a coward. He's that cowardice is exemplified with when Maurice comes into the, the, the living room and, Maurice gives us a lesson in how you deal with tough guys like these. Mm -hmm. And this is another example of Edward G. Robinson showing his gangster mold because he grabs him by the wrist and knocks that knife out of him and gets him to the fucking ground. And he's like, bitch, get out of here. He is two steps away from De Niro kicking this motherfucker. (laughs) Yeah. I wanted to see that. And he kind of does a Edward G. Robinson kick. So it's not the, it's not the same. He, he needs to give it a full force, Ryan. I, I it's mean, not the same. You know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not a proponent for violence on screen with gangsters and whatnot. However, when there are certain actors that have done the job correctly, a good De Niro kick is needed at most times in the day. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, even in the Irishman, no matter how, if you laugh at it, you're wrong because that's a good De Niro kick. You have to ad- kick. You have to adjust your expectations and you need to stop being an asshole <laughs> that's fair that's that's my uh not not to you to to, to trolls of the irishman <laughs> yes um but to uh haters yeah and he when he after he gets davies subdued and whatnot he starts talking to jack ab- uh, about uh carlotta and veronica and he's just like when are you gonna get it through your system and he says the phrase i i i, I don't know how to react to this 
this line about all women are just pure monster. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I don't. That's it. I, yeah, just done. Okay, see you at my anniversary dinner. <laughs> Peace. Which I guess is like the joke that's being attempted here. Right. But like, it doesn't. It, it's weird. It, it, I think it's just like, it really is like showing off different perceptions of what bravado is. It, mm-hmm. I don't, I wish I knew what directors Manelli had in mind when he was tapping into the energy of Kruger because yeah, I was wondering that. I wonder if you, if, I was wondering if you knew that or not, no, or had, had a take. I didn't, I, don't know. Um, I didn't find any info of like something specific that he was going off of. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, this falls in line with any. There were a set of directors back in the era that were had a lot more gumption and gung ho that might fit this bill. Um, you could say John Houston, but this John yeah. Houston was still still kicking some good stuff in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you could say like Wellman or you could say, wow, Walsh, but. It would seem disingenuous. I feel like it's a generalized <laughs> statement of the director. There, yeah. there seems to be that kind of nature because there's nothing, there's nothing as pointed to me of like you'd have to go into like specifically a director who's going overseas to make movies because his career in America is washed up. Uh, but the but the, but the I I think to me this sem- this is a semblance of like the the last bastions of the Hollywood system trying to survive. Mm-hmm. in some form or fashion yeah. and like the employees in general. Um, I will tell you what though, if I were to, f- if I, if I dig deeper in my head and heart and research and I find an example, by the time this episode comes out, I'll do a little addendum and maybe you and I can get back on mic and talk we'll about it. Like, yeah. Like a little bonus episode and just be like, Hey, like this is an update. This is what we've discovered. Um, mm-hmm. But I will tell you, no, but I like that take. I like that take though, that it's just, it's just the, it's just the director of the era. It's yeah. not any one specifically. It's just sort of it's archetypally just that. Yeah. Bad and the Beautiful has specific God. examples because they're easy to identify. This one is not giving us right. the same, the same, uh, the same uh, leeway. Um, and mm-hmm. this is coming from what research we have available to us on this film, which I guess again is scanned. Um, I know. And the, but the anniversary di- dinner happens, and it is an awkward scene in which. <laughs> Jack's act, Maurice's actress just can't keep her fucking hands off him, even as he's toasting his wife. I know. I mean, bad what, form. What, yeah, I mean, like Claire Trevor has every right to do what she's doing here. She's, he's sure. like, he, he's going like, take your hands off my fucking husband. Like, what the shit? And mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. deal, it, it, it settles in this blowout scene where the actress is like, by the way, the actress's dress is popping out like. I I, it, I didn't notice it until this third or third or fourth viewing when I was um, rewatching for the show, but because mm-hmm. we wait, full disclosure we wait, we've been we've had some scheduling issues, but this is like the fourth time. This is the only time I noticed this. The actress who's playing that main squeeze when mm-hmm. you when she's being shaken, stuff's popping out, and I'm just like that's really I, I did not notice. It's like so subtle. They cut away really quick. So he's like, you don't like, really, oh, you don't see anything, but you think you saw something. So it's kind of like the psycho thing where it's just like, you thought you saw something, but it's not there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this is where 
everything starts to unwind for a lot of people. And amidst this, yeah. Jack and Veronica, like Veronica is trying to figure out who she wants to be with. Does she want to be with Davies or does she want to be with Andrus? The answer is mm-hmm. Andrus because Andrus doesn't beat her. But also, <laughs> yes, uh, but there is this lovely scene with them walking through and Jack explaining the reality of the decisions you make and what happens if you come to America, what does that look like and such. And mm-hmm. it's a very lovely walking scene. Yeah, I do. I is. do enjoy the way it looks. Um, and she, I mean, to my mind, Andrus has enough on his plate because you have Carlotta at that anniversary dinner already breathing down his neck and to the point where she's saying the line of like, have you seen a billion dollars breathe? <laughs> <laughs> and points to her geriatric-ish husband who is who she says likes to watch men go after her and i'm like oh right. wonderful yeah. w- wonderful billionaires like, are- y- y'all y'all are all fucked yeah, up. Y- y'all- yeah y'all are part of that weird society sex cult that fucking brian usna talked about in society and i don't want any fucking part of it like you you guys are just like you guys are off your fucking rocker. Like there's such a thing as being naughty and there's such a thing as just being fucking weird. (laughs) Um, Boundary boundaries, people come on. Yes, exactly. And it does have like he, all by the way, he does say we leave in about 10 days and I'm like, it's only been four fucking days. (laughs) Four days. How long have we been on this rock guys? We've got less than two weeks in another town now, but just barely. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> 10 more days yeah and uh um, been a whirlwind four days yeah it has to the point where it's so whirlwind that he can't remember the name of the of the wine they drank and she said it is specifically vinoble wine to the point where she starts crying and i'm like well at least it wasn't vin diesel wine because then you'd be crying and puking <laughs> but yes you know yeah, it's my Does he wine. have a wine? No, Does he have a wine? no but oh. I'm going to now, Johnson. I'm going to. I need all the money after that franchise ends. You just watch. <laughs> I got my own vineyard. It's called Vin Vineyard. <laughs> yeah, what you don't know is in the 10th entry, we're getting rid of the Corona and making the Vin Diesel wine, the new drink of the Fast and Furious family. The Toretto's drink, Vin Diesel wine. <laughs> <laughs> I've loved that, too. You see that like shameless plugging and promotion in the final one. <laughs> he's like drinking it while he's like in a car. It's like, wait a minute, you can't. Also, I'm hungry. Oh, what's this? A bag of Doritos. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just go all out. Be like, what's this? I'm driving a Nissan. That's kind of like for average people, and I guess you in the audience can enjoy driving that car while I drive cooler cars. <laughs> um, but he. He goes back to the uh, to the hotel, and she, Carlotta goes in into yeah. the elevator. I love this shot. They get into the elevator from Andrus's perspective. They go up right. the elevator, and she says, "I'll be uh, come up later. I'll call you." And we cut to this trodden shot of Douglas. Mm-hmm. He's be- he's being put through all the emotional ringers. It's fucking ridiculous, right? And then. We get this phone call in the middle of the night. We think it's going to be Carlotta, but oh no. Oh no. No. Maurice has had a heart attack. Boom. And we find out Maurice has had a heart attack because Kirk Douglas says he has a heart attack, but um, Kirk Douglas didn't say that on set because the ADR in this is so fucking obvious. (laughs) Right. I almost wonder, that seemed like a thing that happened because they were like, oh, we need to add this in so that it's clearer or something. But but then you figure it out 
in the next scene. So I don't know why they needed it. I but. wonder if it's like, cause the scene as it unfolds, they do mention his heart attack and heart problems, but it's almost just like, I guess was MGM or was Manelli worried about this is my question. Like what, what, what goes into the thinking know. of that? Like, it's almost, you want to know is just like, did somebody take control of this movie from Manelli itself? And then just, you know, like redub it Maybe. in that fashion. Yeah, I don't know. But, I mean, we might find out in the reception of this film because there are a couple of things that the that was cut and trimmed around in this film, to say the fucking mm-hmm. least. This is yeah. full of this. But yes, we get this heart attack scene and um you see Eddie um you see Maurice on the bed and he's going, Mother of mercy, is this the end of Rico? Oh wait, wrong movie. Um and wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. No, you're not Mervyn Leroy. And you're not <laughs> And you're not Douglas Fairbanks Jr. What the fuck am I doing? Oh, that's right. That's right. I'm playing an aged director who's all washed up. Gotcha. Yeah. Sorry. Who's going back to golden days, boys? <laughs> uh, Sorry. That's some nice recalling, man. Uh, and we revealed that also amongst this Maurice, who, by the way, the the sweat on Maurice is like fucking like, it looks like super palpable on an HDTV. It's where I'm just yeah, like, yeah, looks, that's a sponge. But he looks fucked up. Yeah, but you've, so nev- pale. you've never seen him look this messed, messy. I, I, I feel like you've never seen him this particularly messy in clarity. Like black right. and white. Okay, you can do that. But in color, like he's a mess. It's like, ooh. Yeah, he's he's been he's been put through the through, through. that room is all red. It's red. It's like that microphone that you have. This red microphone. Yeah, the, imagine the color that I have in the microphone with all those promo photos that I take of this show because I'm a fucking attention whore apparently. And imagine that strewn about an entire room in a bed set, and that's yeah, what that, you get. And, and like the pillows are red. Like the whole. It's like oh damn, this is like. It, it's like you're in a heart. Yeah. That's what it felt like. It, 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 you know, like in this day and age, in the day and age that this was being filmed, it would be classy. Today would be part of one of the love hotels in Blue Valentine or something, you know? <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I found a way to sneak it in. Um, and uh, it reveals Good that. Plug. Mar- yeah. Well, yeah. Derek Sean France always deserves a plug, right? I mean, that Colorado native. Oh, yeah. yeah. Give him, give him a shout That's out. That's true. Um, shout out. Older, yeah, yeah, place behind the place beyond the pines in theaters a couple years ago. Um, yes, <laughs> uh, and uh, but he uh, he reveals Maurice reveals that Carlotta and him met up at one point, and he's he was just like trying to tell he was trying to tell Carlotta to stop manipulating Jack emotionally, and mm-hmm. she just goes like, oh, "I'm not going to stop doing that, so you could just get out of this fucking car, old man." She's so. like, "Hell no." I'm going to keep doing it. It's awesome. And I'm going to take you to a motel. So, you know, like he's been pushed to the point of this heart attack. He's got the film productions, a fucking mess. His wife is angry because of his own doing, but you know, whatever. Okay. You're still stressed. And you're trying to keep the person who's helping you mentally stable by addressing his ex-wife and his ex-wife is a, is a nightmare. So, This all culminates in a heart attack for him. And naturally, this means, well, now the movie's not going to get finished, right, Ryan? You think this movie's going to get finished? I don't know if it's going to get finished. I think. Probably not. No, you know, all over. End of the movie. Well, you know what? I have an idea. I have an idea. I think I know how I can save this movie, Ryan. We've had a guy been doing the dubbing, right? You know, he's been directing the dubbing. His name is Jack Andrus. He was supposed to be the act, an actor for a couple scenes. Yeah, but he's worked with Kruger before, so he knows his shit, you know? What if? That's right. What if Kruger directs the pickup shots? He directs the rest of the movie. Yes, exactly. Brilliant. Now, now we get 
another allusion to the bad and the beautiful that is very on the nose. I will say that's true. The bad and the beautiful treats it as tragedy. This treats it as hopeful. Mm-hmm. I like redemption. That. Yeah, he gets redemption. This movie, like, yeah. this movie ends up being about re- redemption in weird, vicarious ways. Because you yeah. think this is going to be about the redemption of Jack Kruger, and it ends up being about the, re- or not, not Jack Kruger, Maurice Kruger, and ends up being yeah. about the redemption of Jack Andrus. I mm-hmm. appreciate that because it flips, it flips what Bad and the Beautiful does on a visual scale because the cuts are the same. You see the cuts of them going scene for scene for scene, him trying to direct this movie in mm-hmm. similar fashion. But we do get extended versions of this. Right. And um, but first they gotta find Davies because he's fucking missing this diva actor motherfucker. He's like, out. He's he, out. he's missing in Rome. You know what, Ryan? Maybe we need to bring back the contract system. Keep him in control. Keep him in line. You know, I don't know. Or you know, just... hell no. <laughs> no, just no, we kidding. don't do that. Yeah, no, don't don't bring back that fucking system. That's indentured servitude, and Olivia de Havilland destroyed it with her fucking mighty hammer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, for full for full details, listen back to our To Ease His Own episode with Olivia Carmel, where we talked about the badassery of Olivia de Havilland. Um, but, there you go. Yeah, Olivia on Olivia. Yeah, yeah. That, the, the episode was called the Two Olivias because I'm oh. I'm a fan of obviousness, and <laughs> uh, and but yeah, they they go to nightclub to nightclub looking for Davies, and we get these nice like music cues in between each nightclub, and we get some nice you know, rear projection driving shots and whatnot. And like mm-hmm. Hitchcock looks at him and goes like, son of a bitch, everybody keeps stealing my ideas, but it's then like, they keep telling it. me I should stop. <laughs> I like that montage when they're like going through Rome, like to like the parties and the bars and they're trying to find him. Like, I think that's, yeah, I like that bit. One of them had a music cue that reminded me of Scorsese movies. Like just the way it's angled. Yeah, He's going, it like, did. It did. Like, you know what I'm talking about? It's like that lower yes. angle on the bald guy. Yes. Yeah, it was like a weird thing. Oh, and I like that guy, that that bald dude with the hat and the suit that's like helping him out. Do you know? It's kind of like the I forget who he is or what he does, but he's, he's like he's just there, like he's like one of the studio guys, like he's one of the help. He's like I looked everywhere for him. He's like, what? You look like a really shady motherfucker. Yeah, just, <laughs> what are you doing? He had to hire outside help. Come on, you know you've got to. He's got to get him some help. I actually, well, you know what? I think it is actually the agent though. Because yeah, the it agent, might be what it is. Because the agent is the a. Oh, it is the agent. The person mm. you're talking about is the agent because he's the agent now of Drew Davies. Right, right. And that's how we get oh, a. Con- yeah. And that's how we get a connection at the end because yep. they do find Drew Davies and he's been at Jack Andrus's apartment this whole time, fucking wasted. And he's like, I was, he's like, I was just chilling. They're like, yeah. dude. <laughs> You may do your impression of True Davies again. I was just chilling. <laughs> I was just chilling, man. Come on. And then all of a sudden, why? I was waiting for you. <laughs> I was waiting for you guys to show up. Yeah, They're like, that, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, get the fuck up and get dressed. <laughs> he's like picking, he's like throwing him around. He's like, get, get in the shower, shave. Yeah, now, because he's, now he's the new director and he does, he does this thing about just like, who's directing it? And he's like, I'm directing it. And he's like, you know how? And he's just like, we're going to find out. <laughs> like who you are he's like me yeah throws him in the bathroom yeah exactly and he's just like can i get coffee or whatever and he's like boy don't test me he's like bitch we're going to the studio right now (laughs) chill out you're leaving everybody waiting including me and i am tired i'm drew look at me He's like, I've been through a lot. My hair still looks great, but I've been through a lot. I missed the most important pinochle game at the sanatorium history. 
to deal with this nonsense. So please get in the shower and then get in the fucking car. <laughs> he said to deal with a lot. He said a lot of like job change, like position changes. Like first he goes as an actor, then he's going to do the dubbing. Now he's directing the thing. You know what it reminds me of, Ryan? There's a lot of call to adventures for him like throughout this thing. <laughs> yes, it, it, it's a call to adventure, but it also reminds me about filmmaking today <laughs> just in general that's true you know how You're this like, movie oh. connects to today in every single way <laughs> like oh uh, so i'm gonna do this too all right cool yeah like oh you're telling me i've got to direct produce edit <laughs> cater cater uh change a light bulb <laughs> no that's <laughs> do sound no i'm kidding well i i've directed while doing sound wow that's that's I've not done that yet that's i have done them separately but it, not at the same time it's not fun, but it's, necess- it's if you're if you're like on a like a like I'm talking skeleton crew of like you got two people, you got a DP, you know, so long as you give the instruction beforehand, you get what you need. So long as the yeah. DP is capturing in the frame and whatnot, I'm, I've been able to monitor performance off to the side. And also I trust my own ear at times. So, right. but not advisable, obviously, because the director yeah. should ideally be behind a monitor or at least behind the monitor on the camera itself to be like, okay, action, cut. Okay, that was just, good. Now I want you to express more, you know, emote, emote. Now, can you do that? Can you be more angry? Yeah. Or or you do it like George Lucas and go, can you do it um, faster and more intense? <laughs> can just... you be cooler? <laughs> what? That's Quentin Tarantino directing. They're like, Jesus. They're like, hey, hey, know. that was great. That was great, Ryan. I liked your performance here in, the, in my new movie, um, whatever the fuck it's called. Can He's you like, be cooler in this movie? How about uh, cooler, okay? Can we just, okay? Can we just do cooler? I, I don't understand the question, Quentin. You want me to be cooler? How would Define that for me, please. <laughs> I don't think it's possible. <laughs> okay, man, you just don't believe in the power of cinema, man. You know, like, do I have to get Martin Scorsese in here to explain it to you? <laughs> we'll both like, talk. Yes. Your, we'll talk your head off to death. <laughs> I'm like, yes, yeah. I will not be able to get a word in, yeah. but <laughs> love that. But my ears will bleed. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, they get him to the studio, and it is discovered through this montage that Jack is a very capable director, at least for the standards of 1960s cinema. There is, yeah. there is a, it's inspiring th- to watch. I'm like, dude, I gotta, I gotta, I want to be like that. He's just like on it. He's very like organized. He's very like, he knows exactly what to do in each kind of moment. And he's cooperative. He is cooperative Yeah, because he does insist like that the DP be able to do something that he's been trying to do for weeks. I was like, that's really cool right. to see. That's really fucking cool. Yeah. No, I think, I think it's a good way to be for sure. I yeah. Think it's, a, it's definitely a good, yeah, it's a good uh, strategy to, you know, implement into your own yeah. directing is to be, you know, open and collaborative and yeah. not just treat everyone like they're, you know, <laughs> I don't know, hired guns just just to kind of like, yeah. you know, do exactly what you're thinking. I mean, which, then you don't. Which is, that's the, I th- to me, that's like one of those harsh lessons you start learning eventually as you get older, as you start learning like how to not behave that way and you start learning how to, you kind of just chill out more you just sort yeah. of like you just you just kind of let yeah. you, you, you i think when you're younger you have this idea that it needs to be like a micromanagey kind of thing or something and then yeah as you do it more you're like that's not really how this works yeah <laughs> but you know what you right, don't right. do ryan you know what you don't do this is the one thing i don't agree with on jack Anderson's directing style what don't toss around your actress the way you do just to get her to do that one take the way you want her to do it that's <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. That's she. That's kind of an old school move. That's an old school move. That was one where I'm just like, ew. Like, 
the the only reason they put that in there is because they've set up this character as an Italian actress who's only speaking Italian who is clearly a diva and or demanding and or a perfectionist of some kind. Right. And one that has been made promises to by one Maurice Kruger. And so this shouldn't play as humorous, but it would have played humorous at the time because people would have been right, looking at right. it through the grand lens of behaving and not behaving and the man would be the dominant force in that and so that's how it's presented sure. and portrayed it sucks but it's there it doesn't inhibit andrus's job as a director though so much so that his agent whose former agent who's now his new agent i guess because i guess mm-hmm. <laughs> i guess he's just like you know what i really like you when you make money but i don't like you still but you're gonna make me money, and so therefore but I like you again. <laughs> I see money, yeah. I, I, so I think I think we're cool now. What I what happened was I saw dollar signs pop up in front of my eyeballs like a cartoon, and I was just like, "Say, you apply to these things in front of my eyeballs." <laughs> and he offers him like, but this comes in the form of the fact that Drew Davies loves working with Andrus to the point where he wants Andrus to direct his next picture. And yep. the agent describes it as the biggest novel in the in America right now with the hottest star with the new hottest director. Yes. And Andrews kind of shrugs it off. He's just like, no, I'm here to finish up this up for Jack. I'm, I'm doing this for Jack. Mm-hmm. But then we get this ultimate crushing blow, which really complicates Kruger's performance. And it's one of the reasons why, even though I would advocate for that Oscar nomination still, it is like very like, holy crap, what are you doing here? Because he's really proud of what he's done, and he goes to see Kruger in the hospital. Um, But then Clara has clearly gotten to Kruger and laid into Kruger about Andrus taking control of the project. And I don't want to say gaslighting or like whatever, but it's it's like Grima Wormtongue uh, in Lord of the Rings, whispering in Bernard Hill's ear um, in Rohan. Like, you know, like she's she's the king of this castle here speaking into the the, the puppet king. <laughs> and mm-hmm. but regardless, Kruger, uh, Kruger f- flat out accuses him of trying to steal the movie. Yeah. Trying to steal the film and doing reshoots and throwing out stuff that he did and just taking over. And, yeah, it's a weird it's a it's a weird turn kind of at the last minute. It's like, oh, shit. Yeah. And he's like and he's just like, you're out. Like he 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 dismisses him from everything. So yeah, it's we up. we start seeing the bender of all benders here. Yes, yes, um, yes. Just people hanging around in the same lounge area, clearly either drunk or high on something. With Leslie mm. Uggams singing "Don't Blame Me." By the way, <laughs> Leslie Uggams, beautiful, beautiful, right? Singing beautifully. Mm-hmm. This is her film debut. Who knew that she'd be blind, Al, all these years later? <laughs> Uh, I didn't. Yeah. Again, I love her character because in Deadpool 2, she's just listening to Jack Benny while Deadpool tries to steal Coke that he hid underneath her floorboard. (laughs) Is it Deadpool 2? Yeah, Deadpool 2. I haven't seen that. Oh, It's such a small scene, but the moment I I heard it, I went over to my friend Laura Leibowitz and I was just like, why didn't you tell me? And she's like, I couldn't tell anybody. (laughs) I had had to wait. Yeah, I had to wait, (laughs) but it was totally worth it. Um, so yeah, he goes out on this bender in this orgy scene and Carlotta's with him. So he's like, he's, right. re- he's relapsing entirely. And yep. 
Carlotta takes off and he kind of misses it and he goes up because he's hearing her and he looks up and he sees that Carlotta is fooling around. So he's cl- it's clear that Carlotta is just like this in- ingenuous, you know, just like fucking with them. Yeah, just fucking with them. Like she doesn't care about anybody's feelings. So he gets yeah. in a car to drive him drive away and Carlotta catches up with him and gets him gets in the car with him and we get this wild spinny back rear projection car scene that is yeah it's a crazy scene it it looks like they went on the little motor car in mr toad's wild ride and just which i was on i went i went on recently really does it is it so fun (laughs) oh yeah it's great yeah you go to hell at the end of the ride still (laughs) it's the best it's like what and it's hot it's hot in there yeah it's like oh my god the uh, it's it's an eternal question in my mind is is like why do you end the ride like that that's not how the short ends like it's so good it's so brilliant well disney's just like it's about teaching kids about how they'll go to hell if they do commie things <laughs> yes wanting a motor car makes you a commie <laughs> <laughs> i'm walt disney damn it now watch this fred mcmurray movie that nobody will fucking care about in 80 years um <laughs> And but yeah, the the thing is out of control. He's going like, I'm gonna go for the wall, and she's like, he has she has to remind him, Jack, this isn't our house in the hall in the Hollywood Hills. And so mm-hmm. he's 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 regressed back to that night when he nearly killed got killed in the car crash. Right. And so, you know, it um, he it goes through the streets of Rome. Now he doesn't he survives, and. Yeah, he stop. He doesn't do it. He stops. He stops. I forget yeah. exactly. He... Yeah, he stops, and then we are thrust into the finale of this film where he is leaving to go back. But home. there's that. But there's that part before that where he drives. He like calms down, then he drives over that like I don't know if it's like a waterfall or like a overspilling fountain or y- something. Yes, and it yes. He goes drives under it, and the water crashes over him, and it's this like kind of purifying. Like, yeah, yeah. He gets almost like redemption. Like it's like a rebirth sort of like moment where he, he comes close to death and everything but then he doesn't and now he's sort of like comes out the other end cleansed in a he, weird way he's he's very uh he's 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 given a second chance in sorts and right he goes to the airport to go home and davies tracks him down da- davy goes tracks him down and goes like well why can't why won't you be in my why won't you be the director of my new movies that's like well i would love to work with you again but not right now we're gonna do it eventually He's kind of learning that he still has to figure things out in his life. He's got to get his shit together a little bit, a little bit more. Or he's got to yeah. go back. He's got to leave here and the past behind. It kind of gave him the final, the whole experience that he had gave him, I think, the confidence to sort of move on from like the past and, you know, go back home and kind of yeah. get on the straight and narrow in the right way. And I think, yeah, I like that. I like that it kind of wraps up that way. Yeah, I do too. And it, it, it it's a nice it's a moment of realization that the bad and the beautiful doesn't really have. No, we, we talked about how the bad and the beautiful ends in this way, where in spite of every piece of evidence we saw submitted for our approval in that respect, these people are still wanting to lean on every word of Douglas's character in that movie. And in here, we are given like the mature follow-up to that mm-hmm. in a movie that, I don't know how you feel about this, but I would argue is like because it's trying to straddle two different 
things where it's trying to do this metatextual thing, but it's also trying to grow beyond as like a pro, like a mentally progressive piece. I don't mm-hmm. know if the formula completely works, but damn, it gets so close. Like, right. Um, yeah. It's a little, it's not as like tight. You know what I mean? I guess as I, I would like it to be, but it, but it's still enjoyable. Like it's an yeah, hour and 46 sure. minutes and it breezes by in a really yeah, cool way. Like it's not like you are not dragging for any reason. It's just that there are loose parts to this movie. Like I love right. this movie, but mm-hmm. the, the disclaimer that I would give for people is that there are these, uh, weird wobbles. And so long as you right. are comfortable with kind of like riding the wavelength of the film, then I think you're going to have a fun time. It's because it's not traditional melodrama again. Like it's melodrama, but there's the wobbles are different. Yeah. It just feels like there's like, it almost feels like honestly, you probably could add 10 more minutes to this movie and kind of flesh some stuff out. It just, yeah, I feel like the ending sort of is a little abrupt in a weird way, but I kind of like want more closure with Kruger. I I really kind of wanted an additional scene with Kruger, especially after the Carlotta bit. Right, because that yeah, it's weird that they just leave him like in that ho- in that hospital room, and that's just you know he's completely sort of turned against Jack, and I think it's great. That's a it's a weird place to leave him, but I guess that's how it goes sometimes. Yeah, well, it's uh, I mean, that, regardless, that's how we end the movie. Um, the end it, it gives us the title again: two weeks another another time. Yeah, it's so on it, the plane. The title suggests, like, see, guys, you just spent two weeks in another town. In a different town. Dun, 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 look, at how, dun, dun. look at that. Look at what happens. <laughs> oh, my God. Two weeks in another town, too. Two more weeks. <laughs> two more weeks. <laughs> two weeks. Two more weeks, Jerry. The, the trail. The trails. Uh, the trailer starts off with, you mean I got to go back there again? <laughs> the flight has to diverge and, like, <laughs> land somewhere else. And it's like, I got to spend two weeks here? He's got to he see a cartoon airplane taking a sharp left turn. <laughs> Um, now um we talked about how this movie got very maligned in the edit so Mm. the this is taken off of the turner classic movies site but um a, a little bit here so this movie ran into problems with the motion picture association of america which is newly formed at this time in favor of the uh uh, the Sherlock office and the original Breen office. So we are now dealing with the MPAA, which we now deal with today. And to be honest, still deal with them. Yeah. But I gotta be honest. The MPAA matters very little in an era where streaming exists because that's true. Unless you want, want to put a parental lock on nothing, stopping you from watching a movie at this point, the ratings board lost guys, the ratings board lost it. It self governed itself to a point, but then it also started becoming very manipulative and, politically inclined in terms of um, discriminating against sex um, and Mm -hmm. at many points um, flat out discriminating expression in any form, regardless of sexual orientation. Mm. Um, The Kirby Dick documentary, this film is not yet rated is a good example of it, but it goes even further than that. Like I don't, I, the, the, this is this, the stories that Kevin Smith has told about the ratings, uh, story regarding Jersey girl is nonsense. Like, right. There's no reason. There is no reason that that movie should have been, should have received the rating it did. And that's why it got that. That's why the decision was reversed eventually. 
but yes um yeah regardless though um this also became a method of consternation with uh, MGM, which uh, at the time Joseph Vogel was the new head of this, and he was trying to put turn this project into a family film. Oh, that's a dumb idea. It's not gonna work, man. <laughs> He's like, I love it, but what if it could be more for families? Can you can can you uh, I don't know make Kirk Douglas a little less wily here in this movie? <laughs> I see that they're hitting people a lot. Yeah, is that that's fine, right? Yeah, like that's though though. I mean, that's I mean, my family hits each other all the time, and we're totally stable, totally it's normal. Fine. You know, totally normal. I'm Joseph Vogel, the totally normal head of MGM at this time. It's not like the studio is gonna fall under my domain. You just watch. Um, I'll be great. But yes, they got it re-edited without wow. Manelli's consent. What? Or so is the version we saw, so the version that we see is this re-edited 15 thing. minutes. 15 wow. minutes. Um, and the... And is this the family-friendly <laughs> version too? Or did that not just not really turn out? So off? yes, the version we saw in this movie is at 107 minutes, this is the truncated version. Wow. So we still weren't able to get this thing taken t- taken to the to 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 whatever whatever MGM was wanting out of this is not what they got because I will tell you I think we we all know the the ending of this story for the most part but the um the original orgy party scene was deleted mm-hmm. a la la Dolce Vita and a mo- melancholy monologue by Sid Charisse that was supposed to humanize her character which we don't really get that in this movie we don't get anything that humanizes her. No. But I will tell you that Kirk Douglas was not happy about this. In sure. his autobiography in 1988, uh, he wrote, this was such an injustice to Vincent Minnelli, who'd done a wonderful job with the film, and an injustice to the paying public, who could have experienced of uh, could have had the experience of watching a very dramatic, meaningful film. They released it that way, emasculated. Whoa. Yeah. And you know when you've pissed off... Uh, you know when you've pissed off Spartacus like that, that you're you're not going to rebound from that history-wise. Your studio kind of deserves to crumble when you do that to him. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, MGM, like, you know, maybe you deserve to be bought by Amazon if you treated Kirk Douglas and his friends like that. Maybe so. if you had released the original version of Two Weeks in Another Town, this wouldn't have happened. Yeah. That's awesome. I like that he seems to be, Kirk Douglas seems to be very, like, protective of the the artistic integrity and, and the director i think that's cool yeah it's it's kind of be his vibe well he understood creatives like this mm-hmm. this is a guy who understood that if you were going to make something like spartacus you needed a writer as strong as as dalton trumbo to do that which right. actually spartacus would be a pretty good uh, a pretty good examination of kirk douglas as a whole because we've had to kind of split the difference between douglas and Manelli here at times and I think that I think that the film has a I think that Manelli's the film that still exists today is something that I think that when you watch it you are watching an example of early metatextual commentary that unlike the bad and the beautiful this falls more in line to what we see today mm-hmm. there is show there are showbiz films of this nature that yep. 
resemble this film more than it does the bad and the beautiful because the bad and the beautiful is really drawing into golden age hollywood so when right. you when you look at examples of golden age hollywood being uh uh attempted whether it's through hail caesar or hollywood land etc that's what it's drawing off of more this mm-hmm. one though reminds me of showbiz like more contemporary showbiz movies where like yeah. i mean and i'm trying to think of like you know like la la land kind of kind of falls into certain elements of this um, yeah. Apart from the sure. musical elements, like there are scenes where they are, you know, traipsing around LA and they're creating an environment and an atmosphere for it. Um, right. With those dialogue moments. We also have like the run of the gun, like showbiz dramas that don't even work or like showbiz comedies in general. Like this movie is funny. Like this movie's not like a droll experience. Oh, yeah. This movie's pretty fucking hilarious in a lot of places. Yeah. Um, so I feel like that. I feel like that that tar- type of metatextual commentary has turned more into comedy and less to drama. So when you see films like Two Weeks in Another Town, the drama elements are replaced by more comedic moments. Like mm-hmm. rarely are you going to get a dramatic showbiz drama film that takes place in Hollywood today. Because I think right. I can I do think there is a sense of when you make a movie about Hollywood right now, it seems it seems way too self-aggrandizing. And it's it, true. And it reads it reads off to people. Now I enjoy them because I'm just oh, like, yeah. right on, let them have fun. I don't care. What, it's fun to see. It's always fun to see. Is the story good? If the story is yeah. good, I will watch it. But mm-hmm. if it's not, then it's not, then you know, then then you just if it's like what just happened with Robert De Niro, then it's just like, oh, that's not nice try, but no. <laughs> what just happened? Yeah, exactly. That yeah, no, that it I wish I was kidding about the title of that movie, but that's no, I know, I know. Yeah. yeah I, it, it, I haven't seen the film, but I know, I know what you're talking about. It's not good. Um, uh, I wish it was though. It, it had a, it had an idea and I wish it had succeeded, but it didn't. Um, but right. the response to this movie um, was tepid to say the fucking least. It was not, I know it didn't do well. Yeah. Bosley Crowther, my arch nemesis um, wrote in the New York times in 62 the whole thing is a lot of glib trade patter, ridiculous and unconvincing snarls, and a weird professional clash between the actor and the director that is something out of that is like something out of a Hollywood cartoon. And Dick. Yeah, that that's I mean, that's that's harsh even for him because you know, this movie is not like cartoonish, I don't think. There's caricatures no. in it, but it's not cartoonish. I don't feel that I don't feel that way. Somebody might no, I don't watch, think so either. Somebody might watch this movie and feel otherwise, but I don't think that they're going for that. Especially when you have the ending that you do, you can't tell me it's cartoonish. Because yeah. that's way too mature an ending for its own good. That's yeah. like that's that's the weird thing is like the movie the movie deals in juvenile antics, but then it but it does find a way to balance itself into a maturity. Like it's yeah. not too different from like a coming of age tale or like you know, like the way Kevin Smith handles young adult dramas in, 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 within his comedies, you know, where you're, you right. you have a bunch of like, like chasing Amy, you have a bunch of slacker 20 year olds making comics and whatnot. And then suddenly they have to deal with some form of realism that they haven't expected in their lives, regardless of how mm-hmm. that movie holds up today from a thematic level. That's irrelevant. It's still a strong movie that does the same thing and right. has a mature ending while still being overtly hilarious and having literal cartoon characters in it in the form of Jay and Silent Bob. So you can, you can tell me, you can't tell me that it's not, um, uh, uh, worthy of that. Um, now the reputation 
of the film has grown because Dave Thompson, who wrote for the new biographical dictionary of film, said Mm -hmm. that it was invested with such intense psychological detail that the narrative faults vanish. And Mm -hmm. Jonathan Rosenbaum said it is one of Minnelli's last great pictures. The costumes, decor, and and scope compositions show Minnelli at his most expressive. And the gaudy intensity, as well as the inside detail about the movie business, makes this completely compulsively watchable. And that is a thing. This movie does look beautiful. Like it is a gorgeous looking movie. Like very fucking gorgeous. Um and the this movie lost a lot of money. This is the thing. This is the reason why this movie has been relegated to a dustbin for a long time. Is that this movie Ooh. earned a million in the U.S. and Canada, and 1.5 million elsewhere, and the total loss was two million dollars nine hundred and sixty nine thousand. That's a lot of money, when especially when your yep. movie cost four million. Yeah. So yeah, this Damn. movie this movie was a big old bomb. They blew it. Um, and it wouldn't really recover its legs until coming out on Laserdisc and then eventually coming out in the form of being revived through Turner Classic Movies, um, where it has been shown multiple times. You can see an introduction of this movie for TCM with um, Ben Mankiewicz, my secret half-brother. And, uh, oh, yeah. But Minnelli, Minnelli would carry on... Um, in film up until 1976. After this, he does The Courtship of Eddie's Father, Goodbye Charlie, The Sandpiper, On a Clear Day You Can See Forever, and the AIP film that he later disowns, A Matter of Time. Mm-hmm. Which I've never seen this movie before, but the fact that he disowns it tells me that I need to uh, check this out. <laughs> He's like, fuck this movie. I'm always interested in the movies that Minnelli, uh, or that, that any director like decides to disown, like Dune. Like Dune, I'm just like Dune's not that bad. David Lynch, stop beating yourself up over it. <laughs> He's like, I hate it. I understand you hate it. Now tell me the weather, damn it. <laughs> I love that he tells. Videos me. are great. Those, yeah. I, I mean, I'm not the world's biggest. I'm not the biggest David Lynch head, but I admire sure. the hell out of that man. <laughs> oh yeah, he is unabashedly himself, and he does not give a fuck. <laughs> I know. No insecurity that I can perceive. <laughs> great hair by the way yeah great hair yeah I, I it's almost like i've got somebody in front of me who's trying to attempt to capture that essence and here you're you're succeeding sir i'm trying to i'm keeping it keeping the tradition going yeah exactly don't i'm looking can't stop won't stop <laughs> no i'm looking at um what is it uh vincent minnelli's filmography this dude's done a lot of fucking movies minnelli has again as we stated before he started with cabin in the sky which would be a good discussion if we can get the uh like to have with you, but we also can get it some other people in here to kind of talk about it because there's a lot of implications. We talked about his co- collaborations with Red Skeleton. You know, this is a guy who does an American in Paris before doing The Bad and the Beautiful. He also does Brigadoon, the long, long trailer with Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, uh, TN Sympathy, Designing Women, The Seventh Sin, Gigi. Gigi. Yeah, Gigi. Who doesn't love Gigi? The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Which oh, I've seen that. I've never seen it. It's pretty. It's pretty weird. It's it's kind of a. I think it's kind of a mess. It's got Charles Boyer in it and Glenn Ford and Paul Henry. Oh my god! I need to it's watch crazy. this movie. I need to watch this movie. That that's that's. It's a disaster. Oh, it's also a bomb too. So right. Yeah, Minnelli deals with a lot of this, and it says recommended adult entertainment, like. <laughs> 
Wow. Recommended. That's like, that's crazy. That's, that's insane. Um, but yeah, no, the, Minnelli had a great career of flourishing, whether it be drama or musical. And he, and many times he was able to combine both. And mm-hmm. I think two weeks in another town helps express certain elements of his legacy in terms of how he felt about the industry and how he was able to present an image of it in the bad Mm -hmm. and the beautiful. He does it from a very, very stark point of view about the industry as it existed in the fifties. And it seems like he, I don't want to speak for Minnelli because I'd want to do more research into it, but two weeks in another town gives me the impression, even with the version that we have gives me the impression that Minnelli was more optimistic about the future of film. Than, less cynical yeah the, weirdly yeah because the moment of hope in battle of the beautiful is different it's more like the the it's celebrating the factory yeah in, in a lot of respects this one's ex, ex, uh celebrating the art of film itself and the, yeah. the art of creativity itself That's and the f- redemptive power of that in a weird way or the, what it can be for people which is an interesting take which is a cool take for somebody that's been in that was you know had such a career in film and and went through a lot of different you know was part of the studio system and had his own ups and downs and yeah to kind of come to kind of come out of it with this sort of maybe that take is i think kind of you know pretty cool yeah and he you know like if if you want to if you want to know the power that Manelli held in this time in hollywood there's a compilation film that many people point to as the inspiration for them getting into the musicals of this era, which is that's entertainment. It's a series of films that are compilations by MGM. Manelli's mm. all over those. He's shows. all over it. Yeah. So he is the legacy of MGM in a lot of respects. So like a lot of MGM movies you remember today, apart from, you know, gone with the wind or wizard of Oz or whatever are coming from Manelli because he mm-hmm. was so prominent in the studio and he made the most beautifully expressive films out of that era right um, on that note ryan thank you for talking yes. two weeks in another town for me next time next time you come back you pick this you pick the film you 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 give me a you give me a give me a ringer give me something i haven't mm. seen or something that i have seen i don't know just give me a ringer something you're not expecting okay yeah we'll do yeah and then let people know where they can find your work because i dismissed your work early on and i want to redeem i want to redeem myself by asking you <laughs> where people can find your wonderful Wait, you just dis- you dismissed my work i dismissed your work because i didn't call you a writer and filmmaker first i first called you the person who showed me blue valentine for the first time <laughs> That's and the rude. king of melodrama yeah, which is of, true yes you are in my in life yeah well not, not just genre but that wasn't meant as an insult that was meant as a, as a matter of you bringing one of the first melodramas into this show but now now i'm getting too true to life this is too metatextual man <laughs> this is a lot um yeah my um you can find me on instagram uh my handle is my full name ryan francis johnson um my a link to my website is there. If you also just type in Ryan Francis Johnson, if you just Google it, um, the my website of that name is uh, there, and it has uh, my work on there. Yep, it's wonderful. You should watch Write Writer's Workshop is a good entry point that I recommend for people. It's a fun ah, film. Get you get you, you into thank Ryan's you. style, and it's uh, it's a fantastic watch. Um, thank you again, Ryan, for oh, yeah. coming thank aboard. You. This is going to wrap it up for this episode of the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. You can find out more about us on Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review podcast uh, information on the back end. 
uh, on the next episode, this is going to be the last recording for a while. So our fate is kind of unknown, but um, I will be making a short film um, within two weeks as of this recording. So when um, by the time that this comes out, we will have already recorded some other episodes. Adam Jewell will be back. And I will announce it right here. He's bringing us Paul Newman into the Ballyhoo to talk about The Hustler. We're going to talk some pool, guys. And we may be talking about Fast Eddie Felsen's return in the 80s to do a little bit of a side-by-side because it's a very unique thing, Fast Eddie Felsen. He had two movies uh, in two different decades, but both represent a very interesting blend of old Hollywood tradition with new wave flair. So, um, but until next time, folks, good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Pod and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. That's R-E-V-U-E. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. <laughs>